welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. Right, I am recording for Contreras Corner for Halloween OG. I don't like that, but we'll go with it. <laughs> what would you call it? The Halloween. Halloween. Just Halloween? No, just Halloween. If there must be something, you say Halloween parentheses 1979, or excuse me, 1978 and parentheses. Actually, but I am sorry. This, this movie, it's not Halloween. It's John Carpenter's Halloween. It's, it's right there on the title screen. If okay, if you want to get into it, it's Mustafa Akkad presents <laughs> Donald Pleasance in John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, that is true. <laughs> Introducing Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> it was like watching it this time around. It's like the what's that really bad? Movie? The room that has like the three uh, studio signatures before it actually starts. Like it takes. Yeah, it's. Everyone has to have the biggest dick in this movie, whoever gets top billing. And then lowly Jamie Lee Curtis, who, of course, went on to have a bigger career than any of them, just gets the introducing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was like uh, like watching Drive or uh, uh, The Neon Demon. Uh, well, that's all just that's one person. There's no dick swinging <laughs> contest in that. It's just that that's what it should be. Nicholas Wendy Grafin presents. <laughs> Nicholas Wendig Rafen in Nicholas Wendig Rafen's The Neon Demon. Yeah, it's not dick swinging. It's just like a, a dick unfolding. It just <laughs> yeah. rolls across the room. Like an orange extension cord just rolling out across the room. <laughs> yep. Well, that, that's less than two minutes, and we've already started talking about dicks. So we're on on par, on course here. Uh, ahead of par, actually. So hello, and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. Joined as always by my co-host and friend pal um, in this adventure down the path of the contrary, Julio. Julio, we are here for part two of our Haddonfield Night series. We've some think we've uh, blasphemed by beginning with the Rob Zombie remake, but again, to explain, we're just going chronologically according to canon. Right. We we had to we had to experience the childhood, which is there's no other Halloween movie where you get to do that. So. I mean, Rob Zombie knew what he was doing. We had to experience pain before we could appreciate. <laughs> uh, there is certainly something uh, to be said, regardless of the order. I think that the pairing of Rob Zombie's Halloween and John Carpenter's Halloween, it's almost uh, inescapable. So I'm glad we're doing them back to back. I don't know which one benefits the most from the order that, that we are uh, that we decided on. I don't know if I would have felt differently about Zombies movie if we had watched John Carpenter's first. Uh, but at least I know that it wasn't my first watch on either of them. So uh, 
that part of it. I is think gone. there's there's pros and cons to both sides of it. I mean, um, this was a bit easier of a watch as the gore and viscera and uh, objectification of women wasn't as high. But at the same time, I I was really just missing Malcolm McDowell every five minutes, just <laughs> with his laissez-faire, devil may cry attitude. And um, shit, who's the guy who played Sheriff Brackett in the Rob Zombie one? Uh, that guy. Br- Brad Dorf. Yes, from Alien Resurrection. Yes, his most widely known role from Alien Resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> it's guy that wants to make out with the alien. Uh, yeah, no, I was missing the entire cast. I. It's just, you know, in the end, not to get too far ahead, but we're watching a movie from the 70s versus watching a movie from the... Uh, the odds there's mid 2000s yeah it, it, you know this about me listeners that have been with us for a while know this about me i i can have a hard time sometimes just getting into uh older movies and when you just watched uh more up to date a more modern version of said movie then it can make it even harder but but we'll see we'll, we'll find out i, I have thoughts <laughs> about john carpenter's halloween that are more than just comparing them to uh, comparing it to Rob Zombies. I would hope so. I would hope a lot. You have a lot of thoughts on life that don't boil down to comparing <laughs> it to the way Rob Zombie did it. It's hard, but because uh, <laughs> once you let the zombie into your life, it just takes over. It it just he's yeah. It's like a fucking um, those worms that burrow into your brain and don't leave. That's that's Rob Zombie's contribution. It's a parasite. It just lives with you forever. So. Again, here to tackle the 1978 Halloween, the original Halloween, not the or not the original slasher as it is sometimes uh, incorrectly labeled, but definitely the movie that laid the groundwork for what the prototypical slasher would become. Uh, traveling back 42 years ago as to what started the entire franchise and, uh, in essence, brought us to this adventure we're doing here, our six-part series on Halloween, this being part two yet to come as Season of the Witch, Curse of Michael Myers, H2O, and, of course, the 2018 uh, movie, which was a direct sequel to this. If this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, which, uh, given the time of year it is and the rabid fan base that Halloween has, this very well could be. Uh, So we thank you for listening. For those returning, we appreciate you guys uh, coming back to spend some time with us and give us a moment here uh, while we explain our gimmick to our new listeners. Here on The Contrarians, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That's a slogan we like to have. We typically will find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, often known as Certified Fresh. Make a case against it for maybe why it shouldn't be. Maybe why it should be taken down a few pegs. Uh, on the other side of that coin, we usually aim for about 30% and below for those movies known as Rotten. And make a case for maybe the positive merit in it. Uh, being that Halloween is at a towering 96%. My God. Uh, we're going to be... a. <laughs> We're going to be bringing this one down to size, similarly to how we did with uh, the 94% Nightmare on Elm Street. (laughs) I'm glad you referenced that one. Uh, I wonder if if there are people that are just absolutely bummed that we didn't follow up uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween with uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. No, thank you. (laughs) I mean, it has its fans, so I don't know what to tell you guys. It does. And they, uh, some of them are very vocal about it and have told me in person and on social media that I need to give it another shot. I don't know. It's, I don't know how much more time I have left on this earth. So <laughs> I'd like to dedicate it to 
other areas. Now, uh, Julio, if listeners want to find out how we really feel about this, uh, how are they going to find that out? Uh, you just have to stick through uh, Contrarian's Corner and get to Real Talk, which is like a, the second half of the show. That's where where you get to hear how I really feel about Halloween. If you are not a new listener, you already know how Alex feels about Halloween. That will never <laughs> change. That is one of those uh, constants in life. But how do I feel about Halloween? I literally just finished rewatching it. And uh, while it's sort of well known that I wasn't hot on it before, Maybe maybe I feel differently now. So stick around for real talk uh, where, where that kind of stuff will happen. And Julio, I I thought this kind of added some color to our last episode in that we explained that we watched different versions of the, the film, that being Rob Zombie's Halloween. You watched the director's cut. I watched the theatrical cut. What did you, while... <laughs> what did you watch now? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I felt like from this point forward on the podcast, it might... Um, add some color to it. I don't really plan on us watching different versions of the film, but just how we watched it. Because I think like that comes into a lot of times you and I will talk about, you know, the transfer we saw or the, Mm -hmm. like, you know, the aesthetic of what we saw. So, uh, I watched the 35th anniversary Blu-ray release, which was a astound, uh, outstanding transfer that, um, this movie to me is beautiful and it looked incredible in the like borderline 4k HD that it was transferred in. Uh, did you watch it on Amazon? Uh yeah, I just went with the the easiest thing. It showed up on Amazon Prime. It was it was a a cheap rental, so I just went with that. I watched it on the biggest TV that we have here at home. So you know, I I gave it that. Uh, unlike uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween, which I watched on my laptop, because <laughs> well, here's the thing: my wife is not a big horror movie fan. I was not going to monopolize the living room with Rob Zombie's Halloween. Yeah. Uh, she very yeah. graciously allowed me to monopolize the living room with uh, John Carpenter's Halloween because it's only 90 minutes to begin with. Uh, so she was just uh, in the room reading while I was doing this. Uh, so, so And knowing, yeah, knowing your wife, if she's not a horror movie fan to begin with, the types of movies Rob Zombie make are certainly <laughs> not going to sway her. So you made the right call on that. Yeah, yeah. But Carpenter's Halloween got the big TV and uh, it looked great. It looked great for, you know, a movie that's pretty bare bones. I mean, it's just very, uh, it's low budget. I was reading through the quotes when I was trying to pick some and uh, they kept bringing up the fact that it's a low budget horror movie. I was like, yeah, I guess. It's just, it's hard to imagine this low budget when you have Jamie Lee Curtis running around. <laughs> right? Yeah, the uh, incredibly low budget, uh, only 300,000, but we'll we'll get to all that in the second portion of the podcast. So this, uh, this anniversary edition you have, is it just like a, a single or is it part of a bigger pack of Halloween movies. It, it you know how OCD I am about my movies. It's um it it was a single release for the 35th anniversary. It was released in October of 2013. Uh the special features are fantastic, but it it's um it's also a, a book. It's about a 15 10 15 page book that comes with it, so it's taller than all my other <laughs> movies and thicker. So trying to arrange it with all my other Halloween movies it might drives my OCD and into a overdrive, but um, it includes the 35th anniversary, or maybe it was the 30th, um, when Jamie Lee Curtis actually did one of the horror conventions, and it, it kind of has a little documentary about that, which is pretty fascinating and fun. How good of a sport she is about it all, um, and like I said, the stuff that was made for the TV cuts on there, and there's a commentary with Jamie Lee Curtis and John Carpenter that I may be revisiting. 
Um, but who knows? Maybe a contrarian's corner on this episode is going to open my eyes to some things I never saw or just willfully ignored. Um, so I hope so. Like, we need again, balance on this earth. Well, uh, we'll see. 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. This modest, low-budget John Carpenter horror film uh, was released on October 25th of 1978, right before the holiday weekend. It was released in, um, I think, Kansas City is what I read, which, you know, all great, gigantic <laughs> blockbuster movies, they don't start in Chicago or L.A. or New York. It's all about Kansas City. You got to make your way to the big cities. You got to make your way to the hubs of uh, activity. <laughs> the, yeah, the the real salt of the earth. Now, we will cover a little bit more of this in the second half because it gets kind of dicey. But this movie definitely has a retroactive praise to it as critics were pretty split at the time. Uh, but Julio, what, what quotes, what uh, feedback, what reviews were you able to gather when doing your research here? Oh, yeah. You can tell that Rotten Tomatoes did not exist back when Halloween was considered uh, a divisive movie among critics. Uh, Al Gore had not yet invented the Internet. Nope, nope. And uh, I guess Halloween benefited from that because, you know, it was hard to find negative quotes. Thankfully for Contreras Corner, I'm pulling uh, positive quotes, starting with uh, Michael Rothman from Consequence of Sound who says, Halloween is the ensuing American nightmare. It's the national boogeyman. Uh, do you think America can claim Michael Myers? No. And I think, again, that's there's like, God damn it, I'm already breaking you know, my facetious <laughs> facade here. There are so many moronic readings of the movie, and uh, we'll get to you know how John Carpenter feels about that. Mm -hmm. That's also an incredibly... Uh, perfect American review of it. And that that's especially for the time now, like, uh, God, I wish, you know, Halloween kills. Michael would be Asian or something just to see <laughs> the, the very, very, very minute crossover uh, field of hardcore Halloween fans and Trump supporters. There's, you know, there's probably like 7,000 of them in, in the, the country, but they're just so loud. It, it would be fantastic to see the fallout of that. But no, I do not agree with that review. Hashtag not my Michael. Uh, all right. Uh, ben Rawson Jones from Digital Spy says, still relevant, still scary. Make a date on Halloween night to witness cinema's scariest Michael Myers, unless you've seen The Love Guru causing carnage on the big screen. <laughs> Do you think uh, this, I've always had trouble with this. Do you think that if, uh, if John Carpenter could, or maybe I guess Carpenter doesn't care, but if, if anybody could successfully rebrand the, the, the Halloween franchise to where it's killer is not named Michael Myers. Do you think they would? Because the, you know, we do have a very prominent in pop culture, Mike Myers. <laughs> He uh, didn't quite exist at that time. The actual character was named after, I want to say, a British film distributor. Distributor, excuse me. Um, that, as you can imagine, uh, being a kid <laughs> and seeing this on TV, a kid that was raised on Saturday Night Live and was like big into Wayne's World, the confusion that was there <laughs> for you know mid '90s Alex when this would come on uh, uh, AMC on the rights to it and. Um, when he would be called Michael Myers. So when I was like in fifth or sixth grade, maybe even seventh grade, I thought his name was Mike O. Myers, like he was Irish. <laughs> and so uh, 
because I couldn't process that he would be named, you know, the same, he had the same name as Wayne Campbell. Like <laughs> I didn't have any concept of time at that point in movies. I thought everything was just, you know, within the same canon. It's all happening uh, now. Yes. But uh, I mean, they tried to, it was going to be Jamie Lloyd, but then everyone's like, nope, we just want to see Michael kill. <laughs> we don't care. Let, let, uh, let Mike Myers change his name. He's the one that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, and finally, finally, how could we not quote Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times? Mm-hmm. Halloween is an absolutely merciless thriller, a movie so violent and scary that, yes, I would compare it to Psycho. And that is fine, Ebert, because Psycho also sucks. Oh, man. Mic drop. Bring it on. Oof. Star Contrarian's Corner, please. Uh- <laughs> The significance of that, and I'm saying this like the people listening to this don't already know this, that Roger Ebert giving this movie his seal of approval was 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 a big get. That was like some big cheese because he very is very outspoken against the whole slasher franchise. As I've talked about at least once on our podcast before, his promo he cut on Friday the 13th Part 4 is like <laughs> one of the all-time great promos. Like you can tell he just wants to say motherfuck so bad throughout it, but... <laughs> He restrains himself. It's it's fantastic. So, yeah, reading that, that he gave this, uh, his review of it actually is what led to, or one of the things that led to it becoming so successful because, you know, as with the decades that followed, his opinions, one of the most respected ever in the industry. So Julio has already created the daunting task of me trying to go along with the idea of not only does Halloween suck, but Psycho sucks. <laughs> So <laughs> we'll do Psycho someday. Trust me, it'll be easy. The two, you know, the two big Donald Pleasance vehicles, Psycho <laughs> and uh, Halloween. So let's get down to brass tacks, shall we? It is Halloween night, 1963. Uh, we get right to it. And I do appreciate that over the Rob Zombie one. There's not as much drawn out here, uh, but we see um, it's a POV perspective. It's Michael Cam. And it is Michael Cam. He's he's a bit of a perv, you know. In the the Rob Zombie one, he doesn't really watch his sister. He, he, there is that kind of weird fondling, but in this, he's just kind of watching his sister and her boyfriend get to it. It's uh, I, I don't know, off putting. Well, is that a good way to put it? Yeah, it, but it's it's just a cheap way of putting boobs on the screen. I, I, I promise, I'm going to try really hard not to constantly compare it to Halloween, uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween. But uh, here, it just felt like it wasn't earned, right? It's just you get the the pervy Michael Cam, and number one, it takes forever. It gives us like a tour of the house before you get to to the action, and then it really feels like this was just uh, reminded me of Blowout. It was just boobs, you know, directed by Brian De Palma. It, it that's really the main thing. Uh, there was no real horror uh, uh, was happening because uh, it just felt like everything was an excuse so we could see his sister half naked. And then uh, the killing is just kind of unimaginative. It's uh, the restriction that is put on on the visuals because we're only seeing it through his eyes, like literally through his eyes. It it just didn't have any, you know, I wish I had more style. (laughs) It just, the novelty wore off. That's the thing. But now, Alex, I was trying to give the movie some slack. I'm like, it's the 70s. You know, this this must have blown everybody's minds. <laughs> but then you uh, 
you finally see little Michael, baby Michael, come out of his house and he has his mask and he has his knife, bloody knife. And then that's his parents, right? That come to the house that find him? I would assume so. Okay. I mean, even if it was the neighbors, this would be ridiculous. But uh, <laughs> they they come to him and they kind of freeze in position while the camera pulls back. And the lady, the mom, I guess, she puts her hands in her pockets. <laughs> <laughs> what are we gonna do with this boy yeah it's like michael again <laughs> it's just so weird uh yeah and i i felt my confidence in john carpenter drop when i saw that the way that he staged that whole thing well what was really missing is michael reaching up and snatching his mom's necklace and we see the pearls hit the pavement in slow motion <laughs> That's what was really missing from it. But the the boy they got to play Michael here, his face really looks of torment and guilt. I, I don't want to know what John Carpenter whispered in this boy's ear to get that reaction from him. If he was holding his dog hostage or what. But uh, yeah, you know, Sherry Moon uh, has the logical reaction. Again, we're going to try to do what we can to distance the comparisons. But she runs in the house and starts screaming. These parents are just like... Oh no! What'd you do? It, they they look at him as though he like shit his pants, and he's too old to do that. And yeah, they're like, "Who did you kill this time?" And then yeah, there's no fucking around. We just go straight to 15 years later at Smith's Grove Penitentiary. Uh, it's uh, if they don't say it already, we know it's close to Halloween night. We get uh, enter Doctor Sam Loomis. I realized when citing Donald Pleasance for Psycho, that was probably too inside uh, or too nerdy. I should say inside makes it sound cool, but. Um, <laughs> John Gavin's character in Psycho was named Sam Loomis, which is the reason that he's named that in this movie. Um, oh, see, completely went over my head. I just assumed that that Donald Pleasance had a role in Psycho. I, I haven't seen that movie just a, forever. A, just a very young Donald Pleasance. Yeah, just you know, he could be <laughs> the, the kid in the. He background. plays the bellboy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right this way, Miss Crane. <laughs> so. Uh, We'll see here how keen your eye is. We all know it's coming. We know the story of Halloween. Smith's Grove. Halloween Eve, as it were. uh, The night before the anniversary of the killing of his sister. Loomis is there to accompany uh, a nurse. And they're going to take him to the minimum security facility where he has to be held. And, you know, Loomis is clearly against it. He's He really doesn't even have to be there. He's just so obsessed with seeing that this guy gets put where he needs to go. He feels the need to be there to see it along, which I would argue he kind of just fucks a lot of things up along the way. <laughs> now, do you think that he had the gun at this point? Yes. You think no, so? No, no. Okay. I think he... He, I'm pretty sure he buys it in route. Um, no, I don't believe he had the gun, but they pull up and uh, it's pouring down rain and they get to the gate that's supposed to let him in. And all the inmates are just kind of roaming like cattle. And is it Loomis or the, no, the nurse, the nurse asks, the nurse. Since, since when do they just let him roam around out here? <laughs> don't and at this think? point, Loomis knows something's wrong, but she, she was like genuine in asking. <laughs> she thinks it's normal that all these psychopaths are roaming around in the rain. She seems annoyed that the hospital is just it's like, oh my God, they relaxed their rules again. Now they let them walk around in the rain. It's so Fucking inconvenient liberals. for my driving. <laughs> yeah. She's just like, well, now we're, where do I park? <laughs> uh, yeah. What I was saying was see how keen your eye is here because 
Loomis gets out to see what the hell's going on, like a real white person, just like, what the heck's going on over here? And so the nurse is alone, and then we see this, it's obviously a man, but he's crawling like a spider, and we get this sound effect as he jumps up onto the car. Uh, He reaches in, grabs the nurse, she scurries to the side, and then he knocks out the window with his hand. Did you see, you can clearly see a wrench that he's holding? No. Okay. Is he? I, I thought, yeah, I thought you were going to be able to pick that out because to me, that's at this point one of the funniest parts in the movie because all the effects are pretty seamless because they don't really do much. But his hand comes down and there's clearly just a wrench taped to it so he can like crack the window out. <laughs> you have that rental still on Amazon, so I recommend you go back and watch it just so you can see what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, now that I'm not busy, I'm not going to be busy writing uh, angry notes about the nurse and her behavior. I, I'll probably be able to focus on that uh, <laughs> on that bit of filmmaking. And then, so he breaks out the window. She flees. She actually does the smart thing. Uh, you know, in slasher movies, years and years and years to come, she would have just been staying in there like, ah, or the, you know, <laughs> the door handle would break off. But she actually escapes. So, um the amount of happenstantial deaths in this is pretty small. Yeah, I, I was surprised uh, because, again, you know, we're coming from a movie that, that has a body count that's massive, basically while telling the same story. <laughs> so <laughs> the fact that this nurse is completely, it's spared. Like, you know, the uh, Michael pulls on her hair and that's probably about as bad as it gets. Yeah, exactly. The movie we came from, we're talking like a decapitation minimum. <laughs> he just grabs and pulls her head off. But this, of course, uh, lends itself to one of many, many Oscar clips from Donald Pleasance <laughs> where he runs in. He's gone. The evil's gone. <laughs> Donald Pleasance. Halloween. <laughs> oh, no. He has, he has stronger clips coming up no yeah but still it's just so metal the fact that he refers to him as the evil like he's a fucking pro wrestler or something (laughs) uh yeah he's he's been he's been getting himself worked up the entire drive to the hospital you can tell and and it doesn't help that his conversation with the nurse seems to have been just a constant uh uh him having to uh defend his position (laughs) He's so annoyed when they cut to the interior of the car. He's just like, he wants it to be over. You can tell they like the the energy in the car is like they've been arguing about politics for like a half hour and Loomis just wants it to be over. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's past the the, the part of uh, explaining himself. He's he's just answering the 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 nurses in, in just, you know, those definitive statements where he's just like, well, I guess that's how it is then. (laughs) <laughs> and then she she asks another prodding question. Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. I don't know that that's how it was intended, but I I, I found it pretty amusing. So enter Jamie Lee Curtis, introducing Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode, probably the heroiness of the slasher genre. And we're introduced in a similar fashion to what we just came off of. Uh, her dad's a realtor and asks her to go drop a key off at the old Myers place, which. Much like what we came off of, it's still just this decrepit house that stood like that for 15 years. And you would have thought at some point someone would have fixed it up. But I guess the Pleasantville-esque city of Haddonfield just uses it as like a reminder of the evil. (laughs) And uh, we must never give in to the evil. I'm not quite sure what the psychology behind it is. I think that they just uh, it, it brings color to the town. 
Haddonfield here is just kind of it's pretty vanilla as far as as American towns go. What we see of it is so unremarkable. Uh, so really, if the only thing you have going for your town is that oh, a, a little kid killed his sister in this house uh, a while ago, I would be like, yeah, let's just leave it there. <laughs> Visit Haddonfield, <laughs> the town that birthed Michael Myers. Home of the world-famous Myers house. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, it's possible. We'll get to, um, when we get to the curse of Michael Myers, the Haddonfield kind of uh, does kind of celebrate the the lore of Michael Myers. So that, that kind of comes into play. It took uh, about 20 years for someone to get that idea through their head. But <laughs> Somebody uh, it eventually... Tickets. Yeah, it eventually came into the equation. So Jamie Lee Curtis, man, I think she was supposed to be 17 in this movie, and she was legitimately either 18 or 19. I know the other two actresses, uh, of course, PJ Souls and um, Nancy Keys, Kies, Kays, Nancy. They were both, you know, the prototypical Grease character in their uh, mid to late 20s playing high schoolers. But Jamie Lee Curtis was the, the real McCoy here, uh, a teenager and... So innocent. Yes, from here to now. Uh, I mean, she's Jamie Lee Curtis. She's She was not molesting bagels in this movie at all. She was not, and she also uh, wasn't trying to track down a Christmas ham, and there was no <laughs> played for laughs scene where she's trying to figure out how to put on a spray tan and... <laughs> Do you think if she uh on her on her audition for Halloween when she was auditioning for Halloween, do you think if she had gotten a flash forward, you know, her future, I don't know, what, forty years down the road or something, in seeing herself in Christmas with the cranks, do you think that she would have just turned around and left the building without auditioning? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> like it would have blown past, you know, True Lies and all her other major blockbuster films and just landed her in, you know, Christmas with the Cranks. And I think she just would have stood up and said, John, go fuck yourself and left <laughs> the audition. But I I say all that to say we have seen Jamie Lee Curtis at the lowest lows. So I think even though she's trying to uh, preserve her life and is fleeing from a homicidal maniac in this movie... Uh, we've seen her at a worse point. So it, it's only up from here. As um, Lori, you know, what we're used to, she is walking uh, to school, sees Tommy Doyle in the street, the, his, the uh, young boy that she babysits. Uh, she goes and drops the key off at the Myers house. He, of course, begins the discussion of the boogeyman. And from here, we see that Michael has returned home. He came home and... <laughs> The first thing he sees is Laurie Strode. So you better believe it's time for the stalking to begin. <laughs> it's time for the stalking to begin until it just stops being about stalking her. And it's just about killing anybody around her. And then her, I, I don't know. We, we shall discuss as, as this goes on. But I, I found his motivations very iffy. Uh, and it's not just because the previous Halloween movie we watched, Zombies Halloween, has, a, I think, a better handle on what he wants. Uh, here, I understand that part of the appeal that of what Carpenter is trying to do is just to keep him mysterious. But to me, it just more came across as him being erratic. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. There, there is something, uh, and we can discuss as happens, but I, I think that something that triggers him here, triggers his violence, seems to be uh, either female nudity or just sexuality in general. 
except that that doesn't really hold up as the movie goes on either. So I don't know. I, to me, it's just like Carpenter wasn't really... Uh, I think that trying to pin any sort of motivation on Michael Myers is just a fool's errand because there's nothing consistent enough to to withhold uh, scrutiny. People, people have spent decades making way more of this movie than is there. It's just <laughs> this guy is... He sees a girl and then he follows her, and because of her, he sees more girls, and then he sees some dudes, and he's like, "All right, I'm gonna kill all these people." <laughs> uh, it's just you know a dime a dozen. Uh, that's that story. Um, I'll tell so you. Last... I'll tell you, Alex. Actually, before we move on, because this made me laugh out loud, and I had forgotten the the weirdness that it is. Uh, this concept of Michael Myers driving. Um, <laughs> just so weird. Uh, it happens early on, and I thought maybe I misunderstood, you know, in the opening because he he steals a car from from the nurse, and uh, and I thought, okay, maybe it wasn't Michael Myers, maybe it was one of the other inmates that just drove. Because as somebody says later in the movie, he shouldn't even know how to drive. <laughs> He's been there since he was a little kid, and uh, we do get the incredible line of exposition though of Donald Pleasant saying, "Well, someone here must have taught him how." Yeah, but that's bullshit. Nobody, how? I mean, it's not like you just teach somebody how to drive, uh, uh, you know, uh, isolated from actually putting that person in a car and having them at least drive around a, a parking lot. So we need the uh, the look who's talking scene where it's like, all right, Mike, you see, so just take the stick and you put it in there and then <laughs> you turn it over and then the car goes. Uh, yeah. And also, you know, this is the 70s. So you didn't really, you know, that's probably uh, a standard standard transmission. So I, I can't imagine that he, he could drive all the way to Haddonfield without just fucking up the transmission or, or you know, just <laughs> just destroying the motor. Uh but then it's really funny because now we see him and, and uh, well, he's not creeping on foot. He's creeping in the car. And it's just it's just so silly. I don't know. I, I Maybe I'm just too close-minded when it comes to my perception of Michael Myers. But to me, Michael Myers in a car is just funny. When the car shows up, when he actually gets to Haddonfield, there should be like, you know, the huge mud cakes around the tires and like a piece of a fence that he's dragging (laughs) and one of the lights in the front should be out. It should look like it's been through hell and back. Let's be honest. There should be blood also just on the hood of the car. Doesn't necessarily have to be human blood. He could have hit a deer or some shit on the way. Uh, But yeah. And at this point he's already in full regalia. He's uh, cause he's already at this point in the story. He's robbed the hardware store. He's got the mask and we see how he got his jumpsuit. He killed a, a mechanic on the side of the road on the way to Haddonfield because Loomis finds him. Sadly, there's no uh, Joe Grizzly equivalent here uh, to provide a little bit of levity in, in the um, in the transition. Why not show but, it though? I mean, I, I understand. Uh, you know, Joe Grizzly was it's too much to ask of uh, Carpenter in the seventies, but he could have at least given us that kill. It takes how long, Alex? Maybe half the movie, if not more, before we see Michael kill someone. Well, he kills his sister in the, the first two minutes of the movie. Adult Michael. This is you know, <laughs> okay. Baby Michael doesn't count. I'm talking about adult Michael. From the moment that he breaks out, we're just waiting for it to happen. And it, it takes forever. So it would have been nice to get at least that one kill where, where he gets his clothes and also, you know, just satiates her bloodlust for a little bit. Uh we're introduced to the whole cast. We we now we have Laurie in the picture, but now we're officially introduced to Annie Brackett and Linda, uh, again played by PJ Souls, who relies way more on her catchphrase "totally" here. Oh yeah. Um, 
which somehow seems more forced than <laughs> the remake trying to pay homage to how forced it was. It's a very strange uh, uh, thing to observe. But PJ Souls, of course, uh, would go on the following year to play the role of Riff Randall in Rock and Roll High School, which is what I know her most from. Um, but she definitely went into business for herself in this movie and was there to make sure she, for better or worse, got all the attention. <laughs> Do you think she succeeds when compared to uh, uh, the other two? Uh, because unlike Rob Zombie's movie, uh, these two are 100% supposed to eclipse Jamie Lee Curtis. And mm-hmm. as a man of the, you know, watching this in the year 2020, I, I think the movie, this movie, gets a lot of, uh, I want to say, almost unearned credit just by having Jamie Lee Curtis there uh, because it's Jamie Lee Curtis now. So uh, when I watch it, it doesn't matter if, if Lori is kind of a wet blanket that that it's, it's pretty boring overall because I'm still seeing Jamie Lee Curtis, so I'm just invested because of the actress and the history that actress carries with her uh, retroactively. If I was somebody watching this in the 70s when I didn't know who Jamie Lee Curtis was, I don't think that she would be competition for these other two girls that at least seem to have some sort of social life. Uh, but out of those two, I I think that the the sheriff's daughter, who's not Danielle Harris, uh, probably <laughs> has probably has more going on as much as uh, as the blonde is trying. I keep forgetting her name. PJ. PJ Souls. PJ. Just PJ. Riff PJ. Randall. <laughs> Nancy, uh, it's K-Y-E-S, K's, I'm not sure how to pronounce your last name, but the actress who plays Annie Brackett here, I think she uh, definitely is the most polished of the three, and at no point do I feel that she's being too over the top about anything, but it also comes off as extremely smug that she has so much more of a social (laughs) life than Lori does. I mean, I buy it, but... It's it's just weird. We we mentioned it uh, last episode how the contrast of how you depict teenagers back in the day versus how you depict them uh, in the year of uh, his our Lord and Savior Rob Zombie, and it's just uh, it's it's kind of the contrast is is shocking. And I I try to understand. I try to understand the context, which is that well, this this didn't seem as tame as contained uh, back in the seventies. But to me, watching these girls walk from you know one end of the street to the other, uh, just talking about nothing interesting <laughs> at all. And this was considered fairly realistic dialogue for the time, too. <laughs> yeah, but it's just you know, it doesn't. It's a movie. It doesn't have to be. Realistic. It's not a documentary. He could have given them something interesting to talk about, or at least he could have sped up the pace. I, I put it in John, Car- John Carpenter because this, these actresses just let him set it up. And he decided that he was going to shoot most of this movie in long single takes that move where the movement is very slow and where the conversations just kind of meander uh, this is not, it's not the West Wing, you know, it's not Aaron Sorkin. It's not people like walking and talking, but really having a pep, you know, having energy. It's just like back and forth and there's interesting ideas bouncing around. This is just girls talking about boys in the most, uh, I don't know, outdated possible way. <laughs> Teasing Lori because she doesn't have a date. <laughs> it's just, 
Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not a big fan of how it's not even just how he wrote the teenage characters here, uh, but also how he shot it and how he paced it. It, it doesn't work, man. With or without zombie to compare it to. The extended take, basically what happens is uh, they run out of things to talk about. And then PJ Souls <laughs> is just like, so have you guys seen Star Wars? <laughs> uh, so at this point, Michael is essentially when you uh, get, you know, a, a new GTA game and you just want to see like all of the city and you don't really do any actual missions. You just drive around and kind of observe the 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 ecosystem of it all. That's kind of what he's doing is just kind of driving around Haddonfield. He does do his one noble deed in the movie where Tommy Doyle's running away from school and he runs into him and he kind of slow down, son sidewalks for a regular walking, not a fancy walking and then sends him on his way. Uh, I, I laughed out loud at the scene of, I believe it's Lori goes home after school and drops her books off and then is going to go, you know, I don't know, take the Jack lantern or whatever over to the, the Doyle house. And when she comes out, it's uh, like a panning shot of the side of her house, and the wind is clearly blowing. And there are so many leaves; it comes to a comical extent of like establishing its fall to where I just could see '70s John Carpenter with his long hair and mustache. More leaves, and he's just you know, there's a big shop fan, and he's just dumping these bags of leaves into him, and they're just hitting Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, at 60 miles an hour. It's, <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. I, I never noticed just how over the top it is i hope that um, the, the behind the scenes uh featurette on the on the blu-ray has that that scene you know just them <laughs> shooting that and the carpenter turns to the camera and goes you can never have enough leaves you can never have too much <laughs> when it comes to leaves uh flying at the face of your protagonist so we get loomis arriving in haddonfield he immediately goes to the haddonfield cemetery and we find out of course that judith meyer's headstone has been stolen and uh, again, Oscar scene number two for Daniel uh, Don, and of course Oscar scene number two for Donald Pleasance as he gets to the grave. the The groundskeeper is looking around with you know his mouth agape and just kind of like a slack jawed yokel. And Loomis does not break eye contact with the hole in the ground, and he just like so dickishly asks, "Whose grave is that?" And the groundskeeper, you know, counts and he's like, some bitch, it's Judith Myers. And that's when Loomis, of course, drops the line. He came home. <laughs> and then the best part of this is the scene starts with him driving the groundskeeper up. So, you know, and then Loomis just leaves. So the guy's just like, where do I go? <laughs> Donald Pleasant's in this movie. <laughs> he, you know, he's earned a lot of goodwill with me. Not because of this movie, you know. I guess it's sort of the the similar to the the Jamie Lee Curtis phenomenon. I I've kind of learned to love Donald Pleasance through watching uh, subsequent Halloween movies, where he becomes mm-hmm. more and more unhinged. So, uh, <laughs> but there was something endearing at seeing him in this movie. You know, he's still acting over the top. He's still not acting like a normal person. But considering where his character goes. In later movies, this is a tame Donald Pleasance. You know, he's not out of control. He's trying to follow protocol. <laughs> he's he, he's not. He hasn't become a full blown vigilante. And so, uh, the movie had that advantage, at least, that when I watched Donald Pleasance, at least I was amused. Uh, I was not bored, uh, and I was surprised as I was watching it this time at how long 
uh, those stretches of the movie where he is not uh, on screen, like how long they go for. Uh, he has to make up for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, the, when the camera's on him, he just puts all of it and then he kind of goes and takes a nap while the movie uh, just follows Jamie Lee Curtis and her boring friends. I think I read he's, he did all his parts in like five days, maybe, which makes sense. He looks fly as hell in this movie, too. Like for a time period where clothes were more baggy, he's his like suit and his whole uh, ensemble through the movie would be like fashionable today. It's got that tight, you know, Justin Timberlake, uh, Conor McGregor suit going on. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he knows what he's there to do, but he's going to look damn good while he's doing it. And yeah, I never thought of what you said. That makes sense here. He just seems a little on edge and a little over, little uneasy, and doesn't yet seem like a man that would pull a gun on a ten or twelve year old child. <laughs> yep. Just give it four movies, and then, and then, <laughs> then you'll see. I always, always, always forget that "Don't Fear the Reaper" by Blue Oyster Cult is in this, and we talked about that song on the last episode. And obviously, it's an homage to this. The yep. only song besides you know, Mr. Sandman that's licensed in this movie is. Uh, Don't Fear the Reaper by the Blue Oyster Cult, which thank God they did this then. It didn't wait till 2007 when Rob Zombie did his, did his because I guarantee you the licensing rights to use that song were exponentially higher after that SNL skit than they were in this movie. But as you do, you're driving around town getting stoned to Blue Oyster Cult, and uh, we pull up on the hardware store that was broken into. Um, uh, no cause for concern. All that was taken was rope, a Halloween masks, and a few butcher knives is what the the information that's relayed. And so you speak of long meandering shots. So I imagine you did not care for this sequence here where it's basically just the camera on a swivel. We see Loomis walk up. He introduces himself to the sheriff. The sheriff walks away. And then uh, you see Michael in the car across the street. Well... The difference is, and you're right, I did not care for it, but it's not as bad <laughs> because, uh, one, Loomis, I I cut the movie so much more slack when Loomis is there. It's just it's just funny. It's it's Even when it's not meant to be, it just tickles me. So so having Loomis, I, I love that he, he approaches the crime scene. He's walking all the way from the back. <laughs> I don't know why. I just, in my mind, I just thought that he had, like, walked all the way from the graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like sheriff i need to talk to you he's almost out of breath can someone get me some water <laughs> yeah uh also i love the fact that his intro he says i'm loomis and then he goes dr loomis <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah it, it's so great because he's just like you're gonna talk to me now and he's clearly at an active crime scene uh and <laughs> He's like, the, he's like, I need to talk to you. He's like, uh, not now, Doc. And it is urgent. Ten minutes. And he's just like, I'll be here. And then, you know, cut to him nervously looking around the scene. If he had just turned around. <laughs> uh, we will we will get to, though, the Loomis missing things that are right under his nose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I just I just love, just to add to that, as, as ridiculous as it is, you know, I kind of, I get a kick out of, uh, also out of seeing Michael doing things that are not Michael Myers like so it, in my mind and maybe I have just this weird uh, I'm very close minded like I said about why I expect Michael Myers to do but to me just put Michael Myers in a car or around a car and I just can't take it seriously and sometimes that works for the movie because it makes 
the meandering shots and just a really really slow pace uh, get a little livelier just because it's funny uh, this is the shot earlier when he's kind of stalking the girls where he drives and you, the shot actually shows his face as he looks at them through the window and it's it's literally it's michael myers driving a car it's just hilarious uh, if you freeze frame it that's just it that just looks really funny well in here too it's even more intensified because he's obeying traffic laws he's <laughs> he's there wearing his mask and his jumpsuit in there and he's just at a red light you know just humming <laughs> I don't know, Pop goes the weasel to himself or something, and then, nope, green light, now I go. He's using the blinker. He's just uh, <laughs> keeping a fair distance from the other cars. It's great. So, so begins the adventures of Loomis and Brackett, which I'm curious to see how you felt about it this time, because in our last episode, you said you remember being very bored by all their interactions together. I believe they start off by going to the old Myers house, and uh, essentially what's going to happen is they're going to stake out there. And this is, of course, where he finds out Loomis has that... <laughs> giant gun yes. <laughs> it says something like paranoid much or something to that effect but how, how did you feel about the loomis bracket relationship this go around uh pretty much the same although i i realized that my my trepidation about it uh that i talked about in the last episode is not so much that they spend a lot of time driving around haddonfield because that's how i remembered but no because it's it's even worse. It's more stationary than that, right? They they go to the to the Myers house, and then Loomis just stays there almost for the rest of the movie, and mm-hmm. and then the sheriff disappears almost for the rest of the movie. Uh, but the sense you get from the scenes that you that they have from that moment on is just that there is no progress. You know, the story doesn't move forward with them. It's just uh, basically Loomis is taking out a house that no longer has anything to do with the story. We know that because we know where Michael is through the rest of the story. And uh, it never pays off because it's not like Michael eventually comes back to that house and and then it was worth it. So it's just like this this major digression for one of the main characters that uh, just doesn't work, right? And and then the sheriff, who the fuck knows what he was doing? He, he left Loomis there. He disappeared. When he comes back to check on him... Uh, he kind of says, you know, all right, Doc, I believe you. And I'm, I was thinking, oh, I thought you already believed him. I thought that we were already in the process of mobilizing the troops. But it almost feels like uh, he left, not really taking him seriously, I guess. And then when he comes back, it's like, uh, all right, now for real, I'm going to take you seriously. I'm going to I'm gonna tell my officers to keep an eye out. It's just weird. And their plan is terrible. They just say uh, Loomis easily convinces the sheriff not to tell anybody about this <laughs> Yeah. Don't alert the media because then what's going to happen is everybody's going to call reports that are not accurate. Well, wouldn't that as as uh, inefficient as it would have been? Wouldn't that have saved the lives of the three teenagers that get murdered in this movie anyway? So, well, in in defense of that, uh, in part two and part four, innocent people are brutally murdered because they're mistaken to be Michael Myers. <laughs> Okay, but that is see that's not fair because by then Michael Myers has murdered three teenagers. <laughs> I, I, you know it, it's it's different. I think that if Loomis puts out the call and then what happens is the police department, worst case scenario, they get flooded with calls about like, hey, some weird guy is just uh, being creepy. Can you come check it out? Uh, you know, because at the time they don't even know that he has a Halloween mask or the, you know the Halloween mask. All they know is that some guy, somebody escaped. This guy escaped uh, uh, a psychiatric hospital. So what you do is put the town on, town on alert, which means that, yes, it will be harder to catch Michael because 
he will probably catch on to the fact that people are looking for him and then he will either uh, skip town or lay low. But either way, he's not going to murder anybody else because he'd be on his toes. You know, he'd be he'd be alert. Uh, that to me is a better outcome than what ends up happening in the movie, which is like, okay, well, maybe we sort of capture him. But what happens is uh, Lori's friends die in the process. You know, it was it was a strange time, 1978. It was a learning <laughs> process for everybody. It was uh, fascinating uh, what we found expendable. <laughs> so, the you know, Michael goes on one of his side quests. He stalks Annie uh, as her plan, of course, to have her boyfriend over for some... Um, some trick-or-treating, if you will. And, of course, the saddest part in all of this is that Michael kills the dog at the house that she's babysitting. Dude, which is no e- kidding. Yeah, easily the saddest part of the entire movie. Um, Does the dog and- die dot com? Yes. <laughs> so, Stocks Annie, um, she goes to see Lori because she's going to drop, uh, I believe, the Lindsay, Lindsay Wallace off at, at Tommy Doyle's house because, of course... Like with the the story of Halloween, uh, Lori is going to babysit all the kids while her friends go and engage in their more uh, uh, carnal desires, I think, is one of the plot synopsises I read that made me laugh. And Annie goes back to the house that she's at, the Wallace home, and of course she is killed by Michael. Uh, she is strangled in the backseat of a car first and then is stabbed, uh, presumably in the back, and slowly falls onto the steering wheel and sets the horn off. For a pretty elongated period of time, enough to arouse suspicion, you would think. <laughs> well, everybody's out trick or treating, so you know they they, they can't pay attention. Uh, I've I've learned a few things watching this movie. Uh, one is that you know uh, John Carpenter likes really long, slow takes. Uh, I learned that Michael Myers likes cars. Uh, he he kills his, this big major kill uh, happens in a car, of course. He also likes strangling people. Which, I don't know, refresh my memory because, you know, we're not covering these movies in Haddonfield Nights. But is he as big on strangulation as as, as he is in this movie later on? Like in 2, 3, and 4? 5, too? Uh, not oof. 3, of course. But yeah. It just felt like that was his go-to move in this movie. You know? Because he, he strangles... Uh, uh, who is this? Annie. And then mm-hmm. later he strangles... Bob? Yeah. Uh, you know, and I want to say he was trying to strangle uh, uh, Laurie at some point later. It it seems like uh, you know, by we know he's armed with a knife. <laughs> so uh, yeah, well, Bob he does st- he impales with his knife, but yeah, he, his setup is always a chokehold of some sort. He, uh, I'm trying to think now. I know Sasha Sasha Jensen he strangles in uh, part four, and then come part uh, six when we get to that, he gets all kinds of creative. There's <laughs> there's an axe. There's a machete. It's uh it's he uses um a wheat thrasher because he chases someone into the middle of a cornfield. It's it's ridiculous. The competition yeah. was fierce by then between all the <laughs> yeah. thrashers. The whoever owned it at that point, I guess would have been Dimension, was like, God damn it, another Freddy movie? <laughs> this time his claws grow. Um so after killing Annie, Michael does the Michael and just stands out in front of the house and stares now at the Doyle residence. Tommy and Lindsay start freaking out because there's this giant man uh, just staring a blank calm on his face. And, 
you know, of course they've been watching horror movies and they're all hopped up on candy and the talk of the boogeyman. So Lori is just trying to get them back under control. Meanwhile, uh, PJ souls, uh, Linda and her boyfriend, Bob show up at the Wallace house. I guess there was, the plan was that the two couples were just going to stake out different bedrooms and just kind of go to town on each other. And so they get there thinking Annie's there. This find this, out she's in- this grossed me out more than anything in the in the Rob Zombie movie. By the way, the the little conversation that they have while they're in the car. Uh, I always forget about this, and every time I'm like, "Ew." Yeah, I know. Where the the boyfriend, where Bob is just. Uh, you know, because she's joking around and she's like, okay, this is the plan. And he's like, okay, so the plan is I rip your clothes off and then I rope Lindsay's clothes off. And I actually had to rewind the movie to make sure that he was talking about Lindsay, the the little kid that's being, you know, that Annie's supposed to be babysitting. And I was like, dude, what the fuck? And, and his girlfriend just, uh, you know, she reacts as him like, oh, you, you and your <laughs> twisted sense of humor. Let's go have sex. It was, yeah, that was gross. <laughs> I tried to find something like hoping that like he was supposed to say Annie and they just <laughs> oh, the somehow just missed, missed that. <laughs> yeah. And they somehow just kept that in the movie. Like uh, how in Reservoir Dogs, it, it Sean Penn just have squibs that go off and no one shoots him. <laughs> right. Like it was just one of those things if they fucked up and accidentally left it in there. But I didn't really find anything on that. So, yeah, I always forget about that, too. And it's just kind of like, hmm, this, <laughs> this seems problematic. Um <laughs> Of At course, he dies. 1979 was a different time. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really weird. It, it's uh, real talk in Trans Corner. It matches nothing tonally of the movie. It's just kind of, you know, the proverbial out of left field. So. Back at the Myers Manor, Loomis is outside still staking out. And this is, I guess, our one comedy scene of the movie <laughs> as these uh, young boys are up there and goading one another. We'll go up there and knock on the door and it's haunted. And one, you know, the tough kid walks up to the door and then Loomis hears his name is Lonnie and Lonnie, get your ass away from there. (laughs) And then these kids take off, you know, in terror. And then you get like the happiest, most childlike glee emitting (laughs) from the face of Donald Pleasance. Back when he could still smile. Uh, this this feels. This may be the last time he smiled in the Halloween franchise. Yep. Uh, you know, it feels like it, it just feels like filler. That's the thing that you know they need to. The movie needs Loomis to not find Michael yet because it it needs to save him until the very end. That's that's the only way that he can uh, be the the last minute hero is if he just uh, gets distracted along the way. Fire, you know, chases the wrong. Uh, the wrong lead or whatever but but it's so transparent because there's really nothing going on and i I think that's another reason why it bothers me because it's just very clearly filler uh donald pleasance does what he can but in the end it's just uh there's nothing going on here cut to the wallace residence where bob and linda have uh even by my standards some incredibly quick sex it's you know (laughs) (laughs) it's like a (laughs) He was like a three pumper. He was in and out, and then she acted like it was fantastic. So he does. But then too. I had, yeah, I had to remind myself though they're in high school, and you're the barometer is a bit different at that point in time. Uh, just the idea of having sex at all is something. It's not enough to warrant her reaching over and grabbing a Marlboro Red though, and be like, "Oof, <laughs> that was a doozy." Uh, but she does, and she you know instructs him to go get them some beers. Go downstairs. We get. Uh, this is this sequence is obviously 
two of the three kills, the major kills. And but I think this is probably the scene this movie is most known for. Maybe I would say really where. I, I'm trying to like every movie that has a character watching Halloween has this part where he comes out of the closet and grabs Bob by the throat and lifts him up and stubs, stabs the knife through him. And more importantly for the, the fanatics like myself, this is the debut of the, the Michael head tilt where he stabs him and then just does that like tilt looking at his basically admiring his work. So, <laughs> Maybe it's not the most famous scene amongst normal people, but uh, <laughs> I think fanatics of the franchise, this is one of the go-tos. But it's it's uh, followed up. It precedes, I think, one of the more iconic images of this movie, and that's when Michael puts the sheet over himself and dresses himself up as um, Bob, which contextually, and I'll explain why in real talk, it makes a hell of a lot more sense here than it did in our, our previous entry in Haddonfield Nights. Uh, goes upstairs, shows the beer to Riff Randall, and she's just like, give me a beer. She's not as big of a bitch as what we saw the last go around, and she is, uh, I always, it, I don't know why it tickles me so much. It's just funny to see her filing her nails and just looking up at him, like, what? And we get the very famous, see anything you like line, which, if you've ever been to a theatrical screening of this, that's pretty much the one agreed upon line that you're allowed to quote out loud. Um, and we get some full frontal action, which again, as a kid seeing this movie, uh, obviously the television cut was all I was familiar with till I was probably 16 or so. (laughs) And so the first time I actually saw PJ soul's breasts, it was like, I had been lied to for the previous 10 years of my life. Cause I always just thought you just saw her from the chest up or the neck up, I guess as it was. Oh, so there was no, no pixelation. (laughs) No, 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 no. Um, man, yeah, I'm trying to think of most movies that had any kind of nudity back in the day. Now, when they're on TV or, you know, edited for cable, they're just pixelated. But back in the day, they would do like, um, well, one, when you reframed shots for television, you went from 16.9 to 4.3, the ratio. So it already cut off part of the image. And then two, they would basically just zoom in on shots to get like the nudity cut out of the scene. Right. Um, yeah. So it's so funny too thinking about how very tame this movie is and how much they had to edit out of it to get it on television. Obviously, breasts aren't going to play on NBC in 1981, but um, the AMC cut that Young Alex grew up on did not have Riff Randall's boobs, and so that was a <laughs> that was a big milestone in my life when I finally saw the the uncut version of this movie. This of course leads to her getting mad. A lot about your love for this movie. Uh, Well, it wasn't the first time I've seen boobs. I mean, the movie airplane has boobs in it. I saw that movie when I was a little kid. (laughs) Uh, And of course we've talked about big with um, what's the Elizabeth Perkins. Elizabeth Perkins. Yeah. That was a big one too. This segues into Linda getting mad and saying, all right, well, I'm going to call Lori. Michael sneaks up behind her, chokes her with the the phone cord. Uh, Lori does answer the phone, mistakes it as basically, I think she believes they called, or Annie called her while they were having sex, and so now, I don't know. Julio, I've never (laughs) thought of calling a friend while I was having sex just to... (laughs) Let them hear my vinegar strokes. I don't know about you. Uh, I don't know. You know, girls are weird. They, 
<laughs> there are so many uh, different, more interesting ways that they could have built this relationship between the two uh, very sexual girls and and the virginal Lori. Uh, you know, it's like it's nice that they're friends, but it's also kind of boring. So if it was if it was established, it was that they're very clearly bullying her constantly, then it makes more sense, right? Because, of course, they would do something as shitty as calling her after they've gotten her to basically do their job, right? He, she's taking care of mm-hmm. the kids. And then they would call her to tease her as in, like, look, we're fucking right now. <laughs> Can you hear us? Uh, that would make the whole thing... How's your night going, loser? Exactly, exactly. We joked about this a little bit earlier before we started recording, but to me, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis takes forever to to catch on that something is wrong with this phone call. Uh, because to me, I mean, we're hearing what she was hearing and it just sounded like somebody like having trouble breathing. And, you know, unless this is something that they do all the time, I, I don't know how she, she didn't freak out right away. <laughs> she did act like it was pretty standard. Yeah. And she's like, well, now I get to feel yeah, Now I get to hear your famous squealing. It's like, man, have you, have, do you all do this on the reg? What if Tommy had answered the phone? Oh, God. <laughs> He would have been traumatized for a different reason. So back at the Myers house, we mentioned Loomis not seeing things that are right under his fucking nose. So he's at the Myers house, and then he just kind of does a panning, you know, uh, he like kind of landscapes the street that he's on. <laughs> and then he notices that the entire time he's been there, right across the street from him is the, the car from Smith's Grove. And he's like, hold on a minute. And he runs <laughs> up to inspect familiar. it. This looks familiar. <laughs> and then the music kicks in, so you know it's for real this time. He he runs up, and <laughs> I wish he had said something like, this wasn't here before. Um, <laughs> no, I wish that Carpenter had uh, cut to a flashback from the beginning of the movie when he was driving with the nurse, just to really make that connection. <laughs> he was realizing that that was the same car. Or he like... Uh, wiped his finger on the the hood or something and like licked it. It's like <laughs> that's Smith's Grove, all right. <laughs> um, speaking of the music, though, uh, I know that we've made this reference before, but uh, would you say that the the Halloween theme plays as often in this movie as that thing you do plays in that thing you do? <laughs> More, uh, <laughs> because from square one. Maybe not the 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 theme itself, the boo doo 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 doo, but there's like the bang 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 bang, and there's these anytime anything of consequence is about to happen, they just start playing. Yep. And it's uh, you know, it's kind of like the first Metal Gear Solid. Whenever you get captured, it starts playing that same song over and over again. <laughs> and. I guess if it's your first time watching it, it could add to the intensity. But if you've seen this movie more than once, it's just going to grate on you after a while. Yeah, it's it's not uh, it's very repetitive, you know, to begin with. Before you, on top of it being repetitive, you repeat it over the movie over and over. <laughs> it's just it, it's crazy. It's just mind numbing. So Lori is obviously worried at this point, so she goes back over to the Wallace household and discovers the grisly remains and uh, I guess the display that was left for her to find. She finds Annie splayed out in like a crucifix position in front of the Judith Myers headstone. <laughs> she backs into a wall where Paul is hanging upside down and comes down and starts ricketing back and forth like a swing and then finally one of the cabinet doors open and PJ Souls is in there with uh, 
classic death face, the eyes crossed, staring straight up. I mean, this so, is elaborate. He, oh, yeah. He put in the work. Michael, I, I know you, you kind of mentioned it in the last episode, and I, I mean, I remembered him putting on this place before, but I had forgotten how how much work he puts on this one in the very first movie. Uh, it, it makes it look like he had a plan all along, not just that he was killing on impulse. You know, like he... He took that gravestone uh, for a very specific purpose. <laughs> and so, it, it, I don't know. This is where the movie kind of fell apart for me. I mean, or, or rather like the just the core of the movie. Because up till then, I, I was trying to at least tell myself to do with some sort of logic to the way that things were happening. Uh, because, uh, you know, what you were talking about. Okay, so, so, so Lori is the first person that he sees. And she makes an impression on him. Because of the way that the movie has shown us his uh, his violence, it's always related to something that that has to do with sex. I mean, that's not me putting it, you know, coming up with that. That's like really what the movie did, right? His his sister had sex, then he killed her, and then every time that we've seen him kill somebody uh, or or decide that he was going to kill somebody, it was it was a woman that was. Uh, uh, you know, half naked or, you know, had just had sex or was about to have sex. And uh, so in a way, it kind of tracks, you know, like, oh, so what's happening is that Michael Myers has some sort of uh, trigger reaction to women, naked women and sex and whatever. And and he can tell that Lori, like the movie will not stop reminding us uh, that Lori is a boy scout or a girl scout, that Lori is just is just a square. Lori doesn't have sex. Lori's a virgin. So this is the moment where I thought the movie was going to have that big reveal where, uh, you know, she finds her three friends dead. And then Michael comes out like he does uh, and kind of just shows her like, see what I did? <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate you because you haven't had sex with anyone. But instead, he comes out and then he tries to kill her. And it's like, what was the fucking point? Then? <laughs> I think she... it's still it's just mindless madness. But I think he likes to add a little theater to it D- deep down. And the shape has an artistic side to him that he needs to express. He's a performer at heart. He can't help himself. OK, this is my new head cannon. He was going to just show this as an offering to Lori kind of to say, Hey, I celebrate the fact that you are pure. Unlike my sister, unlike everybody else that I've killed, you are pure. And this is my gift to you. (laughs) But then (laughs) once he was out there, he saw her, he's like, you know what? I really like killing. (laughs) So instead I'm going to try to kill you with my knife. I've changed (sighs) my mind. Yeah. I, if, if Carpenter had come to me, yeah, well, it would have been impossible because I wasn't born yet, but uh, if I could travel back in time and offer my services, just I, I don't have to get a credit. I would just I would just do it for the money. But I would just you get a pseudonym. Yeah, just punch up the script. That's really I. I just want the movie to be better. I don't care about the fame. So Lori's on the run. She falls down a flight of stairs. She flees the Wallace household. She goes back to the Doyle household. Uh, on the way, she's screaming for help. She goes to a neighbor and like knocks on the door. And they look outside and see that she's wearing a Bernie pin. And they refuse her assistance <laughs> and uh, turn her away. And so she gets back to the Doyle household. The power has been cut. Um, we see that the the dumb little shit Tommy had left the window open. So. <laughs> 
we see the breeze coming in and Jamie Lee Curtis knows what this means. She just kind of slinks into the couch and she's just like, Oh God, Michael jumps up and attempts to strangle her. She takes a, a sewing needle, which those things are pretty heavy duty and stabs him in the throat, which is obviously a good start, but then she just doesn't follow up on it. She just assumes that she's taking care of business. What the hell is, you know, what bothered me the most is that she had been watching horror movies all night when she was babysitting mm-hmm. the kids. So you would think that she would recognize the trope of a horror movie as she was living it, right? She, it looks like she's killed Michael. So then she promptly turns her back on him twice <laughs> in what, you know, what's left of the movie. It is just, I don't understand. It is, uh, I guess they never really established that she was smart, right? All that they've established is that she's a Girl Scout and that she, she doesn't, uh, she doesn't get around the way that her friends do, but uh, but yeah, not not very bright, at least not in this situation. Yeah, I mean, I was pretty dumb at seventeen, so I can't harp on her too badly. But she goes uh, up and come on, Alex, Alex, you <laughs> wouldn't have turned your back on on somebody who had killed three of your friends and no. had tried to kill you. I don't think no. I know a single person that would have done that. Uh, but then I don't know anybody. From the seventies, I don't know somebody that was a teenager in the seventies to where I could just ask them and and I know for sure. So maybe you know it's not that people are dumb at seventeen; is that people in the seventies were dumb at seventeen. It's possible they haven't watched as many movies as we have. I don't know. People are getting dumber now, so they could they they could make a mo- way more realistic version of this today. <laughs> people just be trying to take live a selfie with what Michael. Going on, yeah, exactly. Instagram live, yo! I killed him. Your story. Just you with Michael's uh, corpse. So she goes upstairs with uh, Lindsay and Tommy and is like, hey, I took care of it. It's okay. And I think Tommy says, you can't kill the boogeyman. As soon as he does, there's Michael ready for round two. Uh, to her credit, she's a good babysitter. She makes sure the kids are secure first and then goes and hides in the closet and does Worst a really bad hideout. Yeah, does a really bad job of making it seem like she left. And so Michael, of course. <laughs> comes and breaks the um the slats out of the closet uh pretty um a good use of ingenuity here though she grabs a coat hanger unravels it and stabs him in the fucking eye with it which (laughs) would not feel good Uh, when she does this he drops his knife so she takes that and right splits the uprights right in the old bread basket looks like right (laughs) in the solar plexus and he goes down like a sack of potatoes and she comes out, steps over him, tells the kids, hey, I need you to go down the street and tell, you know, I don't know, Aunt Joe and Fricky to, to call the police because we need help here. What are um, you going to do? I'm just going to sit here with my back to uh, to Michael because that worked out so well the first time. <laughs> I've had a long day. I'm just going to sit back and relax. So the kids take off screaming. This, of course, much like in our previous entry, catches the attention of uh, Dr. Loomis. Uh, back at the house, Mike, Michael does the what now is referred to as the Undertaker sit-up and <laughs> gets up, walks over, and it's just a fight at this point. No knife, no nothing. Just grabs her by the throat and is just shaking her, trying to strangle her. And she's she's fighting back. It looks like she goes for a thumb in the eye at one point, but uh, she's able to remove his mask, which pretty much nullifies all of his power. It's like she removes his body armor. <laughs> and uh, But he just takes the mask back and puts it back on. And at this point... Donald Pleasance has shown up. My note says Loomis wrecks shop. He just <laughs> unloads uh, all six shots of his revolver into him. And, He's a you know, marksman. 
which yes. I, I did not expect from the way that he pulled his gun out on that previous scene where he was at the Myers house. When he pulled his gun out at the Myers house, it almost he almost dropped it. <laughs> and in this one, he's just... He had been going to the shooting range in preparation. That's the one of the deleted scenes is him at the shooting range, just, you know... <laughs> in the full uh, fatigues and everything running around. They have the one standee that's like the woman holding the child and then the one that's like a terrorist. <laughs> and he, uh, But he unloads the clip into him and what it does is it forces Michael off of the balcony in their home and he just lands splat on the ground. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis then affirms it was the boogeyman, which is often misquoted <laughs> as a question where someone asks, was that the boogeyman? That's not correct. But Donald Pleasance, of course, in Oscar clip, uh, number X, he just says, as a matter of fact, was. And then he walks over to the balcony, looks down, and wouldn't you know it, Michael's gone. <laughs> and there's this calm that runs over Dr. Loomis as he just kind of looks up and starts looking around, knowing that he could be anywhere at this point. You can see the spark in Donald Pleasanton's eyes when he realizes that this is the beginning of a very lucrative franchise for his character. <laughs> as yeah that's basically his face after carpenter yelled cut they just kept the camera on him and he's just <laughs> it's dawning on him this is going to put my kids through college <laughs> jamie lee curtis cries and then we just hear some really loud breathing and uh just get shots all around town and then the halloween theme oh of course i mean why in, not in a, <laughs> at this point you know it, it's a yeah exactly why not and what we were talking about with uh, the film buster guys, of course, his wife's an, a chimpanzee. And of course, they're going to play <laughs> the Halloween theme again here. So. So begins one of the defining uh, franchises in the slasher genre. And man, that 300,000, they really stretch that to uh, max capacity. <laughs> 295 of that went to Blue Oyster Cult for the, using their song. Really added to the production value of that scene. Uh, it's about as mean as I can be about that movie. It's about as harsh as I can be about it. I, I'm proud of you, Alex. You you made it through. <laughs> I I bought it. Uh, I bought it more than, than most of the things that happened in this movie. So that's, <laughs> Jesus. that's good. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move this along to real talk. All right. Let's do that. See anything you like? <laughs> What's the matter? Can I get your ghost, Bob? <laughs> all right, all right, come on, where's my beer? Well, can't you answer me? Okay, don't answer me. Are you weird? Well, I'm going to call Lori. I want to know where Paul and Annie are. This is going nowhere. Finally. Hello? <laughs> Hello? All right, Annie. First I get your famous chewing, now I get your famous squealing. All right, I am recording for Real Talk for John Carpenter's Halloween. 
It is Mustafa Akkad presents Donald Pleasance in John Carpenter's Halloween. I thought we'd establish this. Jamie Lee Curtis. I honestly, I just didn't remember the first name. Mustafa, I know I've seen his name on the credits at least, what, six times now? Uh, yeah, he's um producer for, uh, yeah, the franchise. And um, his son took it over. Uh, Mustafa, uh, very sadly, um, him and one of his younger relatives were killed in the... Uh, the terrorist bombings of Jordan in 2005 or 2006, whenever Jesus. that happened. Re- yeah, really, really sad. But he was just, you know, a film producer and from this one through the rest of the franchise just believed in it pretty wholeheartedly. And obviously this first one wasn't the biggest of financial investments, but he uh, went on to, um, without him, I mean, there really wouldn't be it. So uh, I, I believe his presents title is very uh real and not just you know hollywood bullshit but (laughs) julio we have arrived at my favorite movie of all time and i know we're going to have disagreements about it heavy lies uh, the crown yeah over over both of us the halloween (laughs) crown that you revere and that i i don't know i don't know how do i feel how do i feel about this movie alex we'll figure it out yeah, I think you're probably just more, uh, not lacrimose, but maybe ambivalent might just be the word, uh, but we'll get to that. Um, I know so much about this movie that like I felt like I was overanalyzing it just by doing the research on it, but I mean, so much of this is things that are pretty commonly known. Uh, do you know what the original name of the movie was? Uh, Haddonfield. Welcome That's to the Criterion release. <laughs> Well, welcome to Haddonfield. No, just Haddonfield is the criterion, but uh, it was the babysitter murders as they were mm. trying to. Yeah, I mean, it was still in the time period of uh, Black Christmas and then all the subsequent attempts to uh, remake Black Christmas, which this obviously, like I said, is not. People don't regard this and, you know, history will not regard this as the first slasher movie, but. It's definitely the movie that created the structure. The it, it was the prototype of what the slasher movie would become. Um, but yeah, so that was a lot of uh, exploitation horror was pretty big then, and having the word murders in there would have definitely been of the of the essence. But uh, I think it was John Carpenter that changed it to Halloween. And like I was reading uh, back to that book I referenced on the last episode, Taking Shape. Um, hilariously that there had never been a movie called Halloween before up until 1978. They were just like, well, fuck, this makes sense. Um, the carpenter was just, just Halloween. It's cleaner. It's cleaner. <laughs> Drop the babysitter murders. Uh, budget of 300,000. It went on to make a box office return of 70 million, making it at the time the highest uh, grossing independent film in history. Uh, it has been surpassed. I'm not sure by what, though. I'm I'm sure someone listening to this right now could tell us, but um, I didn't go that far into it. Probably like Paranormal Activity, one of those. No. <laughs> uh, John Carpenter did this for ten grand. I think is what he said he would do it for, but he took a lower payday. The caveat would be that he would get a percentage of the box office return. Ah. So I think he made the right call on that. Did he also uh, get the rights to all the merchandise? Did he pull a Lucas? 
<laughs> I don't think he got his claws in that deep, but because um, I mean, honestly, who would the fuck would have thought there would have been action figures to come from this? <laughs> and then or masks. Come on. F- five years after it was released, I think it was 1983. There was an Atari video game that was released. Uh, and then, of course, the novelization of it. And I mean, it's like it on a lower pedestal. It is like Star Wars. It's this movie that came out and kind of um, caused a hysteria of sorts on at, at its level and then launched a fucking franchise that four decades later is still very much alive and thriving. Um, released again on October 25th in 1978 in Kansas City, Missouri, which... <laughs> If we ever make a movie, we'll have to release it there because I, I guess it's the hotbed of American culture. Hot, sweaty Kansas. <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe it's just it's just a good luck thing. You know, a little bit of superstition yeah. goes a long way. It's very true. Uh, I I don't know. I really don't know what I can say about it. I mean, I know I can get into it, but the history of it is there. And, you know, with a lot of the movies we've done, especially bigger movies, I think um, – the history of it appeals at a, at a wider scope. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time focusing on, you know, how this movie was made um, because it's not hard to really track down information on it. You know, John Carpenter made attacked on precinct 13 and the studio reached out and was like, Hey, we kind of want you to do this. He said, all right, they got Jamie Lee Curtis because of her mother and the association to psycho. And, uh, one thing just to kind of start off with it, because I don't think we need to spend too much time with it. John Carpenter was not trying to make any social, racial, sexual, gender, any type of statement with it. <laughs> he just was trying to make a very simple movie. And um, I mean, great art inspires debate. And that's what's hilarious about it, because it's still debated to this day. You know, the sim- symbolism and yeah. you know what it means when when it doesn't really mean much. It's just a movie about fear and evil and how. Um, you know what we perceive evil as, and you know evil can be anywhere, and that type of thing. It's just a very standard horror movie. Yeah, but I think that independent of uh, Carpenter's uh, intentions, I think that if if enough people read certain things that he put in the movie, or that you know certain things that he did in the movie, they read them a certain way, then it kind of becomes it. It kind of becomes irrelevant uh, what he wanted, and also it becomes hard to shrug it off because, you know, there has to be a reason why so many people respond to his movie a yeah. certain way. So I think that that's where it gets interesting in a way, uh, which is funny because I had this this argument of sorts uh, with a couple of our Australian friends, Stu and Chaz, about <laughs> Watchmen, of all things. Where uh, Stu kept telling yeah, that thing will just not leave contrarian canon. <laughs> I know it can't. Uh, Stu kept telling me, you know, just repeatedly how little he cared for Zack Snyder's intentions <laughs> when all that mattered was how you know he was actually reading the the product on the screen. And and yeah, I agree with that. But you know, uh, we'll get to that. I'm I'm curious. So if this is not the first slasher movie, which one is the first slasher movie? Is that something that can be answered? I want to say the widely agreed upon original slasher is Black Christmas. Okay. Uh, which would have been four years the elder of this movie. Which is you ever seen it? It's still to this day a fucking terrifying movie. No, it has like two remakes by now, right? I haven't seen any. Oh, you're right. The 
it has the 2005 remake. Um, and then, yeah, there was one that came out last year that it's completely a different story. Yeah. But um, having not seen any of them, I couldn't really, you know, I would just see the, the social media, uh, uproar about it but i i couldn't really like you know <laughs> really get into it uh i, I guess the, the reason i ask is because there are i guess what you could consider slasher tropes in this movie but i would be it's one thing if well this is the first time that it was happening so they were not a trope when when it, when halloween was doing it but things like uh the and i'm sure there's a there's a clever name for the 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 idea of the killer not being dead after you kill him, <laughs> you know, that happens a yeah. lot in slasher movies. Was it already happening in wrestling? We call it the hope spot. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to make sure I didn't out myself as a noob to any of our faithful, uh, horror fan listeners. And yeah, it looks the widely agreed upon three are Bay of blood from 71, which I have never seen. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Black Christmas, both from 1974. And we have done uh, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre on here. So having seen that, and much like with Black Christmas, the idea of, I I don't know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is hard to call a slasher. It's more of just like this very unfortunate thing that happens to a group of people. (laughs) And to the Um, people watching. (laughs) Well, let's calm down. No, but... (laughs) Black Christmas definitely, it's just the idea of like, there's this one person terrorizing this group of people going in and killing them, offing them one by one in, you know, a grisly fashion or what have you. Uh, in Black Christmas, unless I am misremembering anything, I don't remember like the, the, the hope spot where it looks like he's dead, but then he comes back to life, which of course in this, um, happens twice. I think I'm, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I tracked down, I, I think I told you about this. I don't remember if it was while we were recording or not, but there's this really, really cool clip that someone found from, I'm not sure if it's from the premiere or opening weekend, but it is audio from inside an auditorium during a screening of Halloween during its original release. When he sits up, like people start screaming in the theater. <laughs> and so we'll, I, we'll put that audio at some point here in the podcast, but it's obviously now that shit gets laughs. You know, right. so but at this point in time, that was kind of a new concept um, and they would find ways to be get more creative about it. But I mean, that, I think that's this, been kind of my struggle with uh, watching the movie. And I guess it would be my struggle watching any old horror movie. Uh, you know what you're saying about that. There's certain things that are were very effective at the time and that now because we're so familiar with them, they elicit the complete opposite reaction. And uh, and I think that a better movie watcher than myself is able to completely separate the two things. And uh, and I was having trouble doing that. Uh, this one, not not entirely, but every now and then it would, you know, uh, resurface. But before I get into that, uh, let me go ahead and I have three negative quotes and then we can just like dive in. I have two quotes also. Are they negative or positive? They're positive. I'm going to bookend them. So whatever shit you talk here, we'll have (laughs) two things to kind of... You beat me to it, though. I did have the Roger Ebert one in the canon ready to go because that was such a a vital uh, part to the success of the movie. So I'm glad you you did bring that into the fray because, like I said, it's especially noteworthy just because of how 
much he's often a very vocal critic of slashers. Yeah, I gotta be honest. I picked it just because I knew it would give me an opening to talk shit about Psycho. Uh, <laughs> <that was the> <laughs> Wait, reason. do you really not like Psycho? Uh, now that we're in real talk, I like Psycho. I think the ending of Psycho is terrible. The you know, the, let's just stop the movie and explain what happened <laughs> for five minutes. <laughs> Everything else leading up to that, I think, is great. Actually, I, I think it's the shower scene is awesome. The fact that they they kill the person that you think is going to be the protagonist, they kill her like you know a third of the movie in. Uh, the way it's shot, it's all good. But then when it they get to that final scene and it's just like this doctor explaining what was happening, and not just you know it's not just like he gets like a paragraph out. He just you know, does a TED talk about what was happening with Anthony Perkins <laughs> in Psycho. And I feel that that, that really uh, kills the movie. Uh, it's still, I mean, it's still Psycho. I mean, you know, I, I can be facetious about it, but it's still a movie that I would say everybody needs to watch. But, but yeah, I think that that's a big, a big problem with it. You can disagree. It's okay. Moving along. <laughs> Maybe we'll do it on the show one of these days. I don't know what the Rotten Tomato score is. Okay, so I have three negative quotes. One is from uh, the Variety staff at Variety. It's just the entire Variety staff <laughs> came in for this one. And they all just yelled it. <laughs> yes. Uh, it says, after a promising opening, Halloween becomes just another maniac on the loose suspenser. I didn't even know that was a term, suspenser. Um, I mean, you know, I can see where they're coming from. Except that you could say... Back in the day, back in the late 70s, there was no such thing as just another Maniac on the Loose suspenser, maybe? I don't know. Mm. Uh, Gary Arnold from the Washington Post says, Since there is precious little character or plot development to pass the time between stalking sequences, one tends to wish the killer would get on with it. And I can sort of relate because there were times where I was like, can we please move a little faster? Uh, and then finally, Marianne Johansson from Flick Philosopher. She simply says, it's boring. It's not scary. There, I said it. You go, girl. I assume those are all retroactive reviews. Uh, yeah, Marianne Johansson was from 2001. Gary Arnold was 2003. Variety staff, they yelled it all together in 2007. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know that there are any original uh, reviews. I know there are no negative ones because I think these three are the only ones. Yeah. And again, much like Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, it's extremely misleading to act like this movie has always been, you know, heralded as this timeless classic because obviously it did well when it was released, but a lot of its stature and being held where it is has been over the past 40 years, which again, as we talked about our entire goddamn mission statement is that rotten tomatoes is a very flawed system. <laughs> and it, if you don't understand how, like what you're reading or, you know, film history and whatnot, yeah. uh, I did have an another quote. It was uh gene Siskel. Also, he gave it three and a half stars out of four um, said it was a beautifully made thriller that works because director Carpenter knows how to shock while making a smile he repeatedly sets up anticipation of shock and delays the shock for varying lengths of time. The tension is considerable. More than once during this movie, I looked around just to make sure that no one no one weird was sitting behind me. Uh, <laughs> Come on, Cisco. <laughs> 
further extrapolating on the Ebert thing, he actually put it in his top 10 films of 1978. Nice. So, like I said, I did a bit of reading to prepare for this. The Like I said, the 35th anniversary Blu-ray uh, comes with like a, a mini book. The pictures in it are fucking awesome. They're like just um, production stills and a lot of pictures that I haven't even been able to find on Google before. It's just a cool novelty, but uh, it has a... I'm not quite sure who... Uh, is it S- Steph Hutchinson is the gentleman who wrote the essay that accompanies it. Uh, I'm sorry, Steph. Uh, don't mm-hmm. not overly familiar with your work, but I did appreciate the the read and also the uh, paragraph that wraps it up. Unfortunately, in here it is uh, closed with misquoting Laurie Strode as saying, "Was it the boogeyman?" Oh no! In fact, <laughs> she said it was the boogeyman. That irrationally bothers me. If you can't tell me, couldn't tell already. <laughs> So he closed this uh, 35th anniversary retrospective on it, uh, 35-year retrospective, uh, by saying, Halloween isn't just a good story. It's a film that demonstrates an unprecedented understanding of its very media. It's a story that could only be told cinematically, a true folktale for the 20th century and beyond. Light, shadow, silence, and sound form into an experience both tangible and trans transcendent it's a wholly immersive work of art a rare instance of pure cinema like its antagonist it will never die and i think that kind of sums up part of my feeling on it and like i said i saved a another quote to wrap it up so <laughs> it's it's weird of lesser movies i've come in really passionate and ready to you know stake my claim and defend it whereas like with this it's just like uh, it's my favorite movie ever. Uh, you're not going to tell me something that someone hasn't already said or, you know, <laughs> that uh, watching it through modern lenses absolutely can point out some of the flaws with it. But, you know, obviously I can't say I watched it through 1978 lenses because I was uh, nine years before I was born. At the same time, uh, the fact that it's still I have probably seen this movie more than any other movie maybe there's like a disney movie i watched a lot when i was a kid maybe like toy story the first toy story i've seen um other than that maybe tommy boy uh, a com- like a 90s comedy would be one that i've watched a whole hell of a lot but this has to be a movie i've seen it has to be in the upper echelon of most viewings because from childhood till the midpoint of college, man, AMC had those rights to Halloween's one, four, and five. And every <laughs> Halloween, you can guarantee that I was watching them. And um, I've seen it in the theater, I believe, twice. I think I saw a digital screening of it. And then I did get to see a 35 millimeter, like an original run 35 millimeter. And that print was beat up. Like the. <laughs> Most of the color was worn off of it. So like the frames were also like were like almost transparent. And so it was uh, it had like this really weird yellow shimmer to it. But I I did it because it was the draft house was doing it for like it wasn't a terror Tuesday. It was like a Sunday afternoon, but it was three bucks. And I was like, I can just say that I saw it on 35 millimeter because that kind of shit means something to me. (laughs) Um, I own like four different copies of it on different mediums and I go all about that to say it still like kind of spooks me. Like there's parts of it that like when it's done, I still have like an uneasy feeling and to what the movie tries to achieve. That's obviously its highest compliment, but as just a movie from the aspect of like filmmaking, it's, it's pretty much perfect for what it is and what it, 
attempted to be. And it's also found this, I feel it's um, fitting that we just talked about uh, Holy Motors with uh, the Film Buster guys Mm -hmm. in the sense of, I believe it was Ben who was very complimentary of the way the movie was told, not necessarily the story. And that is always how I've felt about Halloween. And I've always had a really hard time, um, you know, putting to words and kind of expressing it's, it's the way it's told. It's not the story that makes this movie. It's, uh, it's the telling. It's not, you know, the, what is actually happening. And that's a very seldom taken path in filmmaking because it's very hard to do. And when you do that, much like with Holy Motors, it ends up just pretty much dividing your audience as to whether they like it or not. And it's uh, it's the- how he kills them, not the fact that he's killing them. <laughs> not really. And that's the, <laughs> I, I always get like irrationally mad when people lump, I understand why they do, but it really bothers me when people lump all horror movies together and say they're just like these gory bloodletting movies, whereas like there's really not any blood in this and you really don't see much of any gore. I mean, uh, you see Riff Randall get strangled to death. That's probably the most gruesome thing that happens in this movie. And I think it's in that uh, vein of implied violence. And which makes things a lot scarier. And that's, you know, the whole point of this is this movie is all about what you don't see. That's why the mask is the way it is. That's why uh, you don't see his eyes, that type of thing. And it's, it's just funny. It's obviously I could go on forever about it. I'm trying to be really um, diplomatic and um, (laughs) what's the word I'm looking for? It's more selective with conservative is the word I was looking for there. I'm so politically minded right now. Everything. My answer is liberal, liberal, uh, <laughs> trying to be conservative with my words just cause I could talk about this forever. And you know, if you've ever talked to me about it or listened to the podcast for length of time, you know how I feel about it, but you know, it's just, I have so many personal anecdotes with it. And I remember watching it like the one I was telling you during uh, contrarian's corner about, how when I was a little kid, I thought his name was Mike O. Myers just because I didn't understand that, you know, someone could be have the same name as the guy from Wayne's World, which is that's true. And um, I remember watching this with my sister when we were little kids. And so it brings back like nostalgia memories of that. And also the way you remember things. Uh, every time I watch it still, uh, when he gets his mask taken off at the end, I always am kind of underwhelmed. It's just a dude with a swollen eye because uh-huh. Like in my mind, the first dozen times I saw whatever, because this movie's all about, you know, seeing what you want to see. Uh, and I remember just always thinking like he looked like a monster. And then like at the older I got and watching it, you know, into my mid to late teens and early 20s into this day. Now I know it's just a dude. But for, you know, 10 years, I thought like when his mask got taken off, he, there was like a monster under there. And which now it's even scarier because it's just again, it's just a guy with a, a swollen eye. And it's like, God, this is remarkably off-putting but (laughs) uh everything about it works for me and then you know at the we can get to the uh breakdowns of you know the individual performances and aspects of it but uh it is a very very good movie now julio i don't I'm, i'm trying to gauge where you sit on the fence my guess is that 
you don't think it's bad. It's just one, it doesn't wow you like it does a lot of people. And two, you maybe found it a little bit boring. Uh, yeah, but I don't really blame the movie for it. As, as I hear you talk about it, and, and also, I mean, because I know, and I, we were talking about just the, the struggle to keep things in context, and I do wonder if there is a genre that suffers as much as horror when you are not there at the right time. You know what I mean? Like, you... Your experience with Halloween, or rather, my experience with Halloween, could never hope to be your experience because I I came to it late. You know, I came to it with uh, first of all, I came to it with already knowledge. You know, I came to it having seen other Halloween movies before I I got to the original, and I came to it with just the the pop culture aspect of it all already weighing on me. Uh, not just the hype, but just the fact that Michael Myers, Halloween, the mask, the theme, all that stuff is just was part of my life way before I even watched John Carpenter's Halloween, uh, which, like I said, I've seen once before. Uh, so I think that to really capture that that really visceral reaction that you get from a horror movie that's working uh I think that you need to be at, there at the right time, uh, which you were, and I wasn't. And now, even knowing that I can't recapture that, it's still hard for me to like be able to put myself objectively in a place where I can at least... Uh, I have to do a lot of work to look past the things that don't work in the movie for me. Uh, yeah. And uh, so that gets in the way of the experience. You know, when... Sometimes with with older movies, all I need to do is just kind of like set my expectations and my reminders at the beginning, and then I can just go through the rest of the movie. Uh, with something like Halloween, I have to constantly go like, well, it was a different time. Well, you know, back then this wasn't uh, as familiar. This wasn't a trope. This was actually mind blowing. This was, you know, the way that the performances worked. This was the, you know, uh, so. Yeah, I wonder if that happens a lot more with horror. Uh, it feels like remember. it would. Were you like that with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, or were you just really disturbed the whole time? Oh, no. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a completely different thing because, <laughs> well, uh, I did have the benefit of coming into it. The first time I watched it, you know, like we discussed in the episode, the first time I watched it was in film school, and I had no idea what I was That's going right. into. And so yeah. I did have that visceral thing. And then rewatching it with you, it it brought back those memories and it was still just very disturbing because it's it's the opposite of Halloween. You know, Halloween, I can I can remove myself enough to appreciate it as as an artsy slasher. And I agree, it shouldn't be dumped, at least, you know, this movie, the first Halloween, uh, shouldn't be dumped with the other you know, with Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street and all that stuff. You know, this one, you can tell that it's trying to to be, you know, for lack of a better word, our uh, artsy about it. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, the the way that it's paced, the way that he frames everything, the way that, you know, very deliberately he's just building up through more than half the movie, it feels. Uh, and so I can appreciate that. But, man, I I want to say that I was bored, but it was more like, uh, you know, I guess maybe it's bored. I was just more like restless. You know, there's, uh, I think that it's, 
the kind of buildup that this movie does for the kind of payoff that it delivers, I think it works, like for me, it works once when you don't know what's happening. But in my case, mm-hmm. because I'm watching it and I already know everything that's going to happen, you know, I know that there's, you know, the, the three friends die, Loomis shoots him at the end, Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, dances with him a couple times and then finally, you know, gets rescued, like all the stuff. So until we get there, uh, I just... You know, it's creepy the first couple of times that we see Michael in the distance just kind of watching her. But then after yeah. a while, when it keeps happening, and, you know, by the time we get to Tommy watching, like seeing him through the window and Michael is across the street, I'm like, we've done this. <laughs> Can we just move on to the next step? I, this, this time around, I was just so ready for him to, for something else to happen in the story, you know, for, for the, the, something to be kicked up a notch. And, which is, admittedly against what John Carpenter seems to want. Obviously what he's trying to do is just like making you wait for it and ask for it. So when it finally happens, it, you know, it just, there's this release, but I, in my case, I was just, I got it, you know, long shots, <laughs> slow, <laughs> just, he's there. Nobody sees him. He killed the dog. I was just like, come on, it's 90 minutes. Why, you know, shouldn't we be moving along? And and I wasn't kidding, Contreras Corner. I feel that the movie starts really strong with Loomis, and then they get him to Haddonfield, they get him in touch with the police, and they, they don't know what to do with him <laughs> until it's time for him to save the day. <laughs> so Donald Pleasant is just chilling outside the Myers house for no reason. Uh, I don't have a fix for it off the top of my head, but... Uh, I just wish that they they were doing more with him. Uh, that doesn't mean you know that I don't appreciate what Donald Pleasance is doing with the with the role of Loomis. You know, and I know we'll talk about performances uh, in a little bit, but uh, but just uh, as far as the the construction of the movie itself, it just yeah, I got restless. I even while admiring it, I mean, I can still you know I was writing snarky notes for for Contrarian's Corner, but I was like, this is you know, I would remind myself, yeah. Late seventies, you know, how cool was this? I guess you know, I, if people hadn't seen anything like this before, and uh, what were they expecting? You know, and and were they just not like me being impatient about the kills, but just more like on edge about mm-hmm. when the kill was going to happen? I, I can, uh, I can think about it, and you know, at least appreciate it that way. But, uh, but yeah, when when I see uh, you know people like Siskel, and I saw some other quotes while I was flipping through them saying that they the movie actually freaked them out that they were actually scared i cannot put myself in those shoes i can't find the closer this movie comes to creeping me out is those shots of michael kind of you know watching from the distance and uh and like i said the movie overdoes them so by the time it gets to the end i don't really care uh yeah and yeah watching it through a modern lens and especially if like you know, if I ever have a, a counterpart, a female a relationship partner that hasn't seen it and showing to them, if they've, you know, showing it to them for the first time, it does need to come with the preface of like, if you don't have any pre existing relationship with this, if you didn't see it when you were younger, uh, or if the movie doesn't catch you quick, it's going to drag by modern standards. Like if you, if your condition is just in, you know, modern television, modern movies and specifically modern horror movies, if this doesn't catch you early. The tediousness 
of which again is by design. That's not mm-hmm. me critiquing the movie, but that is not that will weigh on you, and the score will weigh on you. If this doesn't catch you, and the score doesn't do anything to help heighten your anxiety and you know the suspense of it all, you're just going to get really annoyed by hearing the same score over and over again. Which, <laughs> which again, trying to watch it through like the snarky lens today, that was the thing I caught is like, well, this movie works for me, but if it didn't, hearing these same songs over and over again every time he shows up or these same you know many <laughs> like these sound effects and what the score was um which again i want to wait till we get to the end of haddonfield nights before we kind of compare and contrast in mm-hmm. terms of just saying what worked best but um i am looking forward to getting to the 2018 sequel because carpenter did the soundtrack on that one as well and it's so good um <laughs> screenplay again by john carpenter and deborah hill uh they, if I remember, if I read correctly, they were dating at the time. And yeah. Deborah Hill, I think it was good to have a female on the screenplay for this. I think that could have maybe been used in a previous entry we watched because this movie <laughs> does not hate women nearly as much as the previous movie we watched. And uh, understandably, that uh, I, th- I guess like 60% of the people that get killed in this movie are female, but um, I think that's more just happenstance, not targeted. And as much as PJ souls is really going for it, I, I find the, the dialogue between the three girls is pretty palpable or palatable. Excuse me. <laughs> totally. To- hey, there you go. <laughs> Went right into it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I okay. So l- let's talk since we're talking about the writing. This is where I, I think it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, I never really given it that much thought, and, and then, but the discussion of uh, uh, sexuality and you know what it, what does it mean that you know everybody's having sex except for Lori, and uh, uh, when you consider that what sex means in the in the slasher genre i think it's it's just unavoidable i right so carpenter didn't set out to make a statement about uh about teenagers having sex in horror movies but i guess just uh by the larger context of the genre it it happens anyway you know it's he chose to basically have most of the kills not maybe all of the kills uh, take place right before, right after, right around sexual acts, uh, and so that is you know genre convention, I guess. But it also when you couple it with the fact that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, like I said in the first corner, the movie constantly reminds us how much of a of a goody two shoes she is, and how she's you know it's not just that she probably hasn't had sex but she's even afraid of of the guy that she likes knowing that she likes him you know even though he seems excited about the idea all the stuff i i don't blame anyone for trying to read something into that uh because i think it makes the movie more interesting up to a point the problem is that it doesn't hold up because like i said in contrast corner <laughs> whatever statement you thought that was being done about jamie lee curtis as being different from her peers, uh, completely goes away the moment that he just tries to kill her. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, basically shortly after she discovers the bodies. 
I mean, I guess, you know, the easy answer that is not satisfying is that, well, Carpenter didn't want to say anything about any of this. Like you said, this is just uh, uh, a disturbed man killing people at random, following, you know, just the very minimum, the very minimum of, of, of reasons, you know, using the very, there's nothing connecting his kills other than, well, these people happen to be there. Uh, but I think that you can make, you can still make an interesting statement about the nature of evil and about the, the randomness of evil. Uh, probably you, you would need some sort of a, a acknowledgement, uh, of the fact that as humans, we're constantly trying to uh, find a reason to find a pattern, you know, rationalize why something bad happens. And sometimes, uh, you know, there's just not that, that explanation isn't there. And so to put Michael Myers as a representation of that, of the evil that we can't rationalize, I think that's pretty cool. I don't think the movie does it. And of course it doesn't do it because Carpenter wasn't interested in doing it, but uh but that's something else that kind of throws me off, right? Because I'm watching it and I recognize elements that could add up to make uh, uh, a more interesting movie in that sense beyond just the, the kills. It doesn't help that we just watch a movie that tries and, you know, fails, but tries to do something uh, more thematically relevant with the Michael Myers story. Uh, you know, we talked, last episode about how the first half of Rob Zombie's Halloween is more compelling because he's at least trying, you know, and then, and then he just drops it. And so that I, I come up against that also while watching this movie, because I can see that uh, there, there are dots to be connected, whether Carpenter intended it or not. And, but of course, when, even when you connect them, they don't add up to a satisfying, um, I don't know, final picture. Do you, no, when you watch it, it, you know, you've watched it plenty of times and you started watching when you were a kid. So obviously to you, it was, it was, uh, a lot more about, again, that visceral experience because as, as mm-hmm. a kid, I don't think that you were like looking for meaning beyond the kills, <laughs> but, <laughs> but as you got older, did it ever like occur to you? Like, you know, before you knew that, I don't know how early on you knew that Carpenter didn't really intend for any of it to, you know be overanalyzed but uh, uh, did it ever like did you ever go like huh isn't it curious that he's killing people that are having sex <laughs> uh no and it could be d- due to the fact that i read you know in my early 20s like interviews he did about it and whatnot but uh to me it always seemed like they got killed because they let their guard down like they weren't yeah. really paying attention to what was going on around them and um, I mean, Annie way more so. She's just walking around like with no pants, just <laughs> spilling shit everywhere. And <laughs> I do remember when I was a kid, much like as an adult, the saddest part of the movie was when the dog got killed. That made me sad. And uh, yeah, I always just thought it was because they were dumb. They weren't paying attention to what was going on. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm someone that has pretty intense anxiety myself and suffers from always, you know, making sure everything's fine, much like Lori, but I could relate to that of like her just, you know, locking doors, making sure everything's there and accounted for. Uh, unfortunately, she's probably a bit nicer than I am. Uh, if you were Annie and, you know, you and your wife were like, hey, we're at this house across the street, and then I got a weird call and all the lights went off, I'd be like, man, I hope they're okay, but I'm going to stay over here right now. <laughs> Good to know. Um, 
No. Uh, <laughs> it's... I think so many elements of it are relatable to me, especially because I grew up in a very Pleasantville-esque town, much like Haddonfield. We didn't have a Myers house, though. We didn't have a house that like was a standing reminder of a tragedy or massacre. But um, just the idea that nothing can go wrong, and uh, but still, again, just relating to the Laurie character of just always kind of being a little bit on edge and a little bit unsure and uh, a little bit not sure of her own sanity and because of that making sure she's a bit more alert and attentive um yeah the sex thing never really came to mind for me with this it does in like all other movies like i remember i caught on real quick and i think that now i'm kind of thinking of it now and just kind of realizing it i think that that's it's obvious this movie just spoke to me in a different way but like pretty young i mean maybe like 13 or so on friday the 13th Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream, those movies. I was like, oh, that person had sex. They're about to die. I figured that out <laughs> really quick. Yeah. And well, I was going to say, I think, I, too. I, I think that in those movies, the difference, and this is a, you know, I'll give credit to Halloween. I, I joked about it in Contreras Corner, but I don't think this is the case. Like, I, I think that in most slashers, uh, you pair sex and murder for the titillating factor, right? It's like, mm-hmm. well, it's because it's just hot in a way, you know, it's like, you got to give it, you got to, you got to give them the, the boobs. And, uh, and then isn't it funny if you pair it with the murder, but uh, this movie never feels uh, like it exploits that in that way. You know, it just, which is, I guess why it tricks you or it tricked me and other people into wanting to see more to it than that. You know, it's not just that mm-hmm. they, they let their guard down. It's like they let their guard down while they were having sex you know, he, he kills his, it's just, it's such a like red herring, I guess, of a potential reason, you know, again, I think the human mind is just conditioned to try to find an explanation. And so when the first thing you show us is this little kid watching his sister uh, and her boyfriend go to town and then sneaking out, sneaking up on her sister while she's half naked and killing her, then it feels like that should mean more than what it does, uh, you know? But but again, I'm watching it as, as an adult, so I'm just, like, obviously overanalyzing it from the very beginning instead of just letting it take me uh, as a fresh experience. And that can drive you crazy, too, trying to make sense of something that's not there. We've talked to... Uh, there's a lot of movies that we've talked about, you know, and I was thinking about that an, an analogy or whatever you want to call it I made earlier, the point of the the story versus the telling because we've done plenty of movies where the story was pretty good but the telling was dog shit mm-hmm. and um on that same vein we've done plenty of movies too where we try to make more of it than is there and it, you come up frustrated with it when you can't and i completely can see that that if you're watching this through modern lenses or just in the general sense of you want to try to make some sense of it then you could potentially come up short and find that frustrating and it's been proven there's people that have written like scholarly articles on it about trying to make sense of this movie and you know <laughs> what it means and the phallocentric nature of the knife and to me it's always is what has made it so good is that there is no sense to be made of it again in my opinion clearly enough people believe it one way or the other like you said whether john carpenter intended to the the quote i had was uh, it has been suggested i was making some kind of moral statement believe me i was not 
but uh, <laughs> that's fine for him to say now. There's a lot of music that's been made that was made with, you know, no real intention that has taken on kind of a life of its own. But for me personally, you know, the statement that's there is that there's no sense to be made out of crazy and evil sometimes, which inherently makes the movie even scarier. Whereas, you know, all the really bad movies I like, the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street's my takeaway of the story of that is this is a stupid movie that I can watch and just, you know, <laughs> eat junk food and laugh at. Whereas, you know, um, I guess that kind of leads me to my next question. So, like I said, we'll do a uh, retrospective at the end, but we have to compare since the remake had this aspect to it. Do you like the idea of having more exploration of young Michael? Cause I'm a big fan of just like, he's just crazy and you never really find out why. Yeah, I I like that. I mean, I, just preface this so you don't completely hate me. This is a better <laughs> movie, like objectively, you know, if I can just rem- it, remove myself from like the things that I know that don't work on me because I'm just part of this modern audience that is not experiencing the way it should be experienced. Uh, this is a better movie than Rob Zombie's movie. Uh, Thank you. But, but with all its failings it's massive failings and if you want to know my problems in detail with rob zombie's movie you can listen to just our last episode but uh with all those failings i find that what that movie starts off trying to do is more interesting in but the funny thing is there is an overlap is they're not at odds uh, the reading of michael is pure evil and he's just doing these things uh you know and don't try to 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 make sense of it is not entirely at odds with the reading of the Rob Zombie movie, which is like, mm-hmm. we don't know what drove this kid to be the way he is. You know, I mean, yes, he has a shitty family and all that stuff, but there is, uh, that alone is not enough to turn you into Michael Myers, the the murderer, you know, in Halloween. So uh, I said it last episode, I found that aspect of the movie very uh, interesting, you know, that I wish they'd stuck with that, the idea of, uh, you know, you talk about hopelessness in the face of of uh, evil that you don't understand. That's Loomis trying to understand what's happening with Michael and failing through the entire movie. So I think that, uh, again, it's a flawed movie that eventually becomes undone because the filmmaker behind it just can't help himself. But I think that it it did a better job of dramatizing that idea of uh, what do we do in the face of just unexplainable evil that, you know, you can you can do that reading on Halloween, too, except that in Halloween, the, the people that are I don't think in Halloween, there's anybody in John Carpenter's Halloween. I'm sorry. I don't think there's anybody actively trying to solve that that mystery of answering that question right everybody in john carpenter's halloween is just a victim the one person that knows what's going on uh is dr loomis and he has no interest in reckoning with this this. he just wants to kill michael (laughs) whereas in uh, rob zombie's halloween there is a good portion of the movie devoted to trying to understand what's happening and just basically showing us that you you can try but you're going to fail so that I find that more interesting. Obviously, to me, the perfect world would be one where we merge what Zombie was trying to to accomplish. I'm assuming, you know, maybe just like Carpenter, he was like he can say, "No, I just thought that it would be fun to see a, a kid 
doing creepy stuff. Uh, <laughs> but but in a perfect world, you would merge that with the with the talent, the restraint, or whatever of a filmmaker like John Carpenter, and then you have you know the best of both worlds. I mean, you know, there's some entries in the Halloween franchise I haven't seen yet. Maybe that happens. <laughs> I think uh, it does not. Yeah, I was gonna say I think it's unlikely. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, if I could have a movie that's you know uh, the the modern equivalent of Carpenter's original, but with uh, with more of a, an interest in the themes that I find fascinating uh, in, in Rob Zombie's movie, uh, that would be perfect. So I I you know the answer is I I like both, and I, at the same time I am dissatisfied by both. A, a sad day for the contrarians here. <laughs> I don't uh, think it's it's uh it's so they're so different though. I think, like I said, I think there's overlap. I think oh. that what what you like about Carpenter's movie is it's kind of there to be found uh, in Rob Zombie's. You know, you have to kind of wade through a lot of gore and excessive bullshit in it, but but it's kind of there too. Yeah, I'm not even going to approach that. For all the positive <laughs> things I did say about uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween, and for the very genuine comment I made of it's one of the movies I have a more complicated relationship with, I don't even hold it in the same stratosphere as this. So, uh, no. I, uh, <laughs> I'm also listen to that commentary and let me know. I also am, uh, as I've said on here before, and it's one of the things I've grown impatient with, with the modern telling of, uh, with the modern presentation of television and film is the idea of every single thing has to be explained. I'm a big fan of just getting dropped in and having to figure out your way. Whereas with this, they, they spoon feed you pretty well, but there's still that aspect of Loomis's character of just like, I really do like their dynamic, especially obviously in the, the original of he's the only one that really understands him. And what he understands is that he is just should never be allowed to, like out, he should be locked away forever. He's this like anomaly to the human race that has occurred. And he sees through, you know, any potential facade that he can put up as, you know, crazy or whatnot. He knows what he is and what he is should be locked away in a vault to never be accessed. Um, so moving in here, kind of winding down, we'll get into a little buckshot approach with the performances. Uh, like I said, I could be here all day talking about this. Um, one thing I did want to call out that I thought was funny was this is one of the, this was one of the first films to use uh, the Panavision camera. Mm-hmm. It had a uh, just a different scope, and it's used for a lot of the panning shots. And um, the cinematographer they got for this was a gentleman by the name of Dean uh, Kundi, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. And uh, I'm trying to see if he did anything else of real notoriety. And he did Rock and Roll High School, so there's Back to Back for me. Uh, wow. Back to the Future. He did the cinematography for Back to the Future. Uh, to one, two, and three, Hook, Jurassic Park, uh, Apollo 13. So obviously he's an accomplished uh, cinematographer. But the thing that caught me uh, that I laughed at was, I guess he might have been friends with John Carpenter. Uh, and when he got him to work on this movie, um, he owned all of his equipment. So they didn't have to spend any money buying or renting equipment for it. So that's how they saved so much money on, you know, mm. the, the the this movie was a masterful exercise in penny pinching. And <laughs> I truly respect it. We just spoke on Loomis. And so we'll start with Donald Pleasance, the, the star of this movie, top billing. Um, originally, there were 
two other potential Dr. Loomises. Uh, one uh, was Peter Cushing uh, and Christopher Lee. Those were the original two that uh, John Carpenter wanted to have uh, in the role names. of Loomis. Yeah. And uh, I believe it was one of the producers that recommended Donald Pleasance um, or someone at the studio that was funding the movie. It was like, hey, use someone this Someone who looked at the budget. <laughs> Yeah, well, Loomis got paid. Uh, I'm sorry. I know his name's Donald Pleasance. He, he will always be Loomis. Uh, he got paid 20 grand for five days' work. I take that. I think that's a pretty sweet deal. I Especially pack of cigarettes the, every day. Yeah, 1978. He's great in this. He's so comedically over the top, but still makes it seem good. I mean, he's he was obviously a very polished actor at this point in time. Um, mm-hmm. And. It's just funny. Some of his delivery is just so absurd, but it's still because he's so good at his job, it still comes across as very good and hearty and genuine. And a big chunk of my friendship with our, our friend Reed has been built upon us doing Loomis impressions. So it's... Uh, <laughs> and my sister and me do do a lot. There's a lot of Loomis. No, like there's a lot of that from time to time. So the further we get into this franchise the more absurd his dialogue becomes and this by the by the you know comparison of 4 5 and 6 he is tame in this movie so uh we'll <laughs> oh, get to yeah. the more ludicrous um but i mean honestly he's great one thing that i always forget that pops me every time is he unloads all six shots into michael and michael falls off the balcony and they cut back to loomis and he's pulling the trigger again just to you know <laughs> just to make sure the job's done and the Lonnie gets your ass away from there. Like I said, if this doesn't hook you, his performance potentially could take you out of it. But from what I picked up in Contrarian's Corner, it sounds like you genuinely enjoyed his contributions. I, I do. Uh, but but also, I think I mentioned in Contrarian's Corner, uh, it was a benefit just being able to revisit this, having seen where he goes in future movies. Because I think, I want to say when I watch Halloween uh the first time I hadn't seen any of the others. And so to me, it was just like, Oh, okay. So he's the Malcolm McDowell of this movie. And it was just, okay. But, uh, but it's, it's just, there's something special about seeing where it all begins, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, and having seen him, you know, having seen where he goes as an actor, I was, it's, yeah, there, there's a, there's a bit of an emotional attachment, oddly enough, to his performance uh, in the series for me, even as as I'm not a big fan of the, you know, I'm not the 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 fan of the franchise that you are, but yet yeah. I still I I I think of him fondly of, of Donald Pleasance as Doctor Loomis in the franchise. So getting to see him here, it's just it's just cool. I don't have the same reaction with Jamie Lee Curtis, which is you know funny because I've uh, well I guess maybe I haven't seen her as Laurie in as many movies. I've seen Halloween 2 once, and then, you know, I saw the most recent one. And uh, maybe that's why it's not, it doesn't feel as special for me to see her uh, as baby Laurie, so to speak, as it is to yeah. see Pleasance. But I don't know, how do you feel? Obviously, I mean, you must like her performance, because if, if not, this wouldn't be your favorite movie. No, yeah, she's great. And it's, it's, um, it's really a blessing, too, because like you said, I mean, I love Donald Pleasance in all of the movies that he's in. But, you know, with Jamie Lee Curtis, we just have her in one, two, which they had to shockingly pay her a whole lot more money for that the second go around. 
uh, one, two, H2O Resurrection, and then the remake, I believe, are the ones that she's in. And in Resurrection, I think she's in fucking 10 minutes of the movie. The dynamic of the Laurie character obviously changes immediately following this movie mm-hmm. to where it becomes the sister aspect. And then, of course, that's retconned when we get to 2018. But we'll save most of that discussion for that point in time. Um, but as far as here and in this movie, she's just perfect for the role because she looks and has the body language of a truly innocent teen. And it's just it so happens that she's also a very good actress. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are so many horror movies that capture the the essence of a teen girl but the acting is shit and with here (laughs) it's like it hits on all cylinders and the way you know her wardrobe with the scenery and like the way it's shot and lit it just it looks it's like a match made in heaven i hate to sound dramatic or romantic about it but it just for what it's going for it looks so perfect there's this shot in this movie it's the part where she like is looking back at the bush and she thinks she sees michael and uh, she bumps into Sheriff Brackett and like a, a leaf or two gets blown in her hair and the way she kind of just like she seems just kind of overwhelmed by the world in this one particular moment. And it's just it's so perfect like a teenager would play in that particular situation. So um, I think her character, again, this is watching it through modern lenses. There becomes the comedic point in it like there is with all the subsequent slasher movies that would come out of this. And just like, bitch, get out of there. What are you doing? Yep. But um that doesn't harbor her acting. And again, the irrational obsession I have with making sure the quote's correct of it was the boogeyman <laughs> is her. That exchange is easily the best exchange of acting in the movie where she, you know, she's crying and it was the boogeyman and Loomis hits him with the, you know, the in memoriam line. As a matter <laughs> of fact, it was. And, <laughs> and just the way of when he goes, and looks over the ledge and he's gone and then we cut back to her and she just like completely breaks down crying and she doesn't even know he's gone yet so you know the worst Mm -hmm. hasn't even come with it it's um obviously she was a the you know uh the metaphorical ball of clay at this point in terms of she would go on to do things in all aspects and all genres of acting that were better than this and very, very good. Uh, But still that should not take away from her, you know, her debut, her rookie effort is still really good. And you can, even with the points that we're calling out of kind of uh, detraction, even watching it through modern lenses, you can still point and say, yeah, there's a lot of talent there. And I assume this person went on to make a lot of really good things. So, uh, you know, overall, yeah, her performance is terrific. Yeah, I think that I think the performance is there, and I really like her beat at the end when she just breaks down. I mm-hmm. I think that that's that's the highlight because that's that it might be like the most uh, interesting thing that the movie gives her to play, and she nails it. Uh, and yeah, she she definitely comes across as a teenager. She I I think she plays the part. I mean, you couldn't play it better. Uh, I think that my where I run into a problem is that I just wish that there was more. That, that, that she was given more to do other than just kind of wait until something happens. And, you know, there's only so much I can take of her babysitting or of her, uh, you know, just talking to her friends and all that stuff. Uh, it's still better overall than than what they give uh, 
Scout Taylor Compton to do in in Rob Zombie's Halloween. I I don't know. You know, now that we've seen them what, both, be I want a to weak see... woman. <laughs> With Scout Taylor Compton, it seemed like the main direction was, hey, you need to make an impression because you are the Jamie Lee Curtis character. So you need to try really hard. And uh, yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis doesn't have to live up to any standard here. So she she can just kind of like be. And uh, But at the same time, you know, there's not a whole lot happening. You know, it's like she gets she kind of gets the sense that somebody's stalking her. And, and then it's just mostly her hanging out in the house for, for, you know, a good chunk of the movie. So I wish that there was more to it. Uh, and it's funny because I realized I don't have the connection to the Lori character that I have to the Loomis character, you know, that mm. allows me to really enjoy that Donald Pleasant's early days, the Loomis early days. Uh, but I do have, the attachment to Jamie Lee Curtis. And I kind of mentioned it in Contrarian's Corner. I think that that works. That's one of the things that works uh, when you're watching the movie with, through modern eyes. Because even if I don't really care that I'm watching young Laurie, I do get a kick out of watching a young Jamie Lee Curtis. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's like I enjoy Loomis for Loomis and I enjoy Laurie for Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, that I can at least find something i don't say redeemable but that's too strong you know, i can just find something to enjoy and mm-hmm. something to latch on to yeah it's like oh it's it's young jamie lee curtis how cool is that why isn't she doing more <laughs> I, I you know the the point of yeah i just you know it boils down to a wish that the movie had had moved a little faster to to get those confrontations you know i it's it's not you know it's a cool idea you know you have this girl who's like the goody two shoes and she's being haunted by this uh, you know, thing that nobody else seems to be aware of, and she's kind of paranoid. And then, uh, eventually, it turns out that yes, it was real. The boogeyman was real, and he almost killed her, and he killed all her friends. But uh, I wish there was more happening between the beginning of that and and you know the conclusion. But she's great. Donald Pleasance is great. I don't know that you know anybody else. I, I know uh, what's her name, the the blonde girl that you keep uh, referencing. Refrendal, PJ Souls. Yes, you know, I know that she's trying, but I don't know that did she make an impression uh, on you beyond the fact that you know the nudity was not there and then it was. No, no, yeah, it was. Uh, everyone in this movie was inconsequential when I was younger, and now, yeah, it's PJ Souls. It's awesome. It's like I <laughs> said, if we're talking PJ Souls joints, I, I would fire up um, Rock and Roll High School before this if I was just watching for her performance, but. Uh, there's a certain, I'm trying to think of the right word. It's what the French call a certain, I don't know what that she, uh, <laughs> that she brings to it, that it, it in hindsight or watching it now in retrospect, it, it really adds to it. And I mean, it's the, the sum of its parts. And if she wasn't in there, there'd be the, the whole aspect of her missing. So, but to your point, uh, Nick Castle, who plays the shape, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance are easily the standouts. Um, gentleman who plays Sheriff Brackett has some good delivery, but it just seems like uh, Charles Cyphers is his name. Likely just, a, again, much like Donald Pleasance, a very polished actor at that point, And mm-hmm. so it shouldn't be surprising. Uh, I really I don't know why, I guess, because I every time I watch this, I have to find something new to appreciate about it. The scene where they go to the hardware store and they've been token up in the car and they talked to Annie's dad, Sheriff Brackett. I don't know why I just thought the exchange in that was better than I remembered. And then that part of like, he's yelling at her and then the alarm goes off. And she's uh, like, my dad shouts too. I don't, yep. it, it tickled me for whatever reason. I, I mean, we'll discuss 
the overall Michaels's when we get to the end. And obviously we're going to be picking up uh, at the end of this movie uh, for the, the final bit of Haddonfield nights. So we'll be, we'll be coming back to uh, certain aspects of this as we're going to be moving on to the bonus episode for our first month here of Haddonfield nights, which is Halloween three season of the witch where Mustafa Akkad and his production company band of merry men, band of merry men, Wanted to try something a little bit different. And in one aspect, I think they succeeded. And in another far greater aspect, they did not. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, (laughs) that's going to be a a fun one. But like I said, that'll be a bonus episode as it's not going to really track any uh, chronology as Michael Myers. The the big, the only way he, or the only, um, the only aspect of that movie that has to do with Michael Myers is in one scene, uh, Halloween's on a television at a bar. So that will be next. Uh, Julio, before we move on to our rankings, I do want to close out with the quote that I had here just to kind of hammer home my feelings on the movie. This coming from the Taking Shape book that I had referenced. Now, um, there are aspects of this paragraph that I don't agree with specifically, but I think it encapsulates kind of my feelings on the matter. Four decades later, it's difficult to find anything to say about Halloween that hasn't been said before. Like Casablanca, The Searchers, and Jaws, it's one of those rare, perfect films. Perhaps that's why we still bother with sequels, remakes, and clones. We know the odds aren't good, but we still hold out hope that lightning may strike twice. Even if it doesn't, we'll always have the original. Forty years later, its raw power has yet to diminish. What's the key to its success? Take your pick. Between the performances, music, cinematography, lighting, and production design, there's so much to appreciate here. Yet it all started with an ace screenplay. Again, my feelings on this are obviously way more exaggerated than yours, or more over the top, I should say, (laughs) Julio. I tweet a lot about wrestling and about how it used to be better. And I tweet a lot about just, I talk about, I should say, things in general and how they used to be better. And I think that paragraph when i was reading that and taking shape kind of brought me some comfort of yeah they may have been but that doesn't mean we can't try to still make things that either will be as good if not better or help to remind us of why things used to be better so it's i think it kind of brought me uh, reaffirmed that I, it's okay to appreciate things from before but hope for better in the future which sometimes i get really hung up on i'm just saying hey no no shit just used to be better and everything sucks now so i think wow. that was kind of that a fucking book exercise. got through to you <laughs> where where i wasn't able to get through to you in like over 100 episodes of the contrarians <laughs> to be fair i just like arguing with you this book doesn't talk back so <laughs> do no, i even have no, to ask what your rating is alex no a plus you know, it's an A plus and then a smiley face next to it and a see me after class. So you get a treat. <laughs> I am conflicted. I, you know, my my brain says three stars. My heart says three and a half. But I, I kind of I feel like that that extra half a star is mostly to please you. And it's pointless <laughs> because it's not going to please you anyway. It's three and a half. <laughs> yeah. I, let's let's be uh, let's be true to myself. It's. No offense, Mr. Carpenter and everybody involved in this movie. I, I, I hope that if nothing else, I've shown that I do appreciate everything that the movie does right, even if it doesn't work for me. But ultimately, the rating reflects how I feel about it. And so to me, it's just it's a good movie that doesn't work for me. So it's three stars. That is fair. 
God, I'm going to laugh so hard if you were like over the moon about part six, The Curse of Michael Myers, which is Dude, like. Dude, never say never. <laughs> I would be like, I had a blast. Give me more Paul Rudd. <laughs> it would have been horrible if I rated it two and a half, which is what I rated uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have had issues with me. I think there's a few listeners, though, that might have, you know, ca- called for uh, Avnio to be canceled on Twitter. Can- <laughs> can- hashtag cancel the contrarians. All right, so that wraps up the original Halloween. That has been a long time in the making, at least from this side of the the coin on the contrarians. So glad we got to do that. Like I said, next episode will be uh, Halloween 3 season of The Witch. In wrapping up, we want to make sure we give a shout-out to the Festive Years who provide our opening and closing tracks. Uh, They open us up with Last Stand, Take Us Home with Summer of 99, as always, greatly appreciated. Be sure to go to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs. Our regular logo and our seasonal logo were both made by Hans Rothgieser, our fellow podcaster and overall uh, renaissance guy. He he podcasts, he, he writes, he draws, and just uh, does everything. You can check out his work at mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can also email him at mildemonios at hotmail.com or reach him on Twitter at mildemonios. Uh, he has three podcasts, two in Spanish. One is called Nación Combi. The other one is called Marginal, about uh, Peruvian current affairs and economy, respectively. You can find him in any podcatchers. And if you want to hear him speak in English, he has a podcast called Living in Peru uh, that's about immigration to Peru. That's in iVox. Uh, he also has a brand new book of uh, short story collections about zombies, of course, because that's his thing. It's called Zomus Zombies. You know, we have to link to that on our show notes if you want to check that out. Or you can just reach out to him online and ask him about his life. How does he feel about Halloween? We've never talked about Halloween. I'm sure he'll let us know soon enough. Must be okay enough with it to make a logo for us. So if we asked him to make a logo for the fly, I don't think he would do that very graciously. (laughs) That is true. That is true. All right, and as has become tradition, we want to give a special thank you to Zoe Perez for helping us operate our social media pages, our Facebook and Instagram account, uh, making it look all nice and pretty for any and all of our followers. So, Zoe, much appreciated. Take us out of here, Alex Mattis. All right. As always, appreciate y'all's support. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. Uh, Do you follow on Facebook? You like on Facebook. So if this is on your feed and you don't already like and or follow our page on facebook be sure to click that like button so until next time until we visit the season of the witch that does it for us here on the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong and we will see you next time Can't quite get by that time